This call is being recorded. Here we go. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Make me smile with my heart. Oh. Why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything Nick told me not to was exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop, man. I tried the best I could, but. What's your addiction? Is it money? Is it girls? Is it we? I've been afflicted by not one, not two, but all three. She's got the same thing about me, but more about us. She's coming over, so I guess that means I'm a drug. Just let me peek now. I mean, damn, I'm so curious. She's got a lover, so the lies and the lust is a rush. Time's of the essence. I need you to be spontaneous. Roll up the door. Henny ain't colder Then I'm coming over Cause it's n- never over oh. Why everything that's supposed to be bad Make me feel so good Everything they told me not to Was exactly what I would Man, I tried to stop, man I tried the best I could, but Make me smile I see the emotion in your eyes That you try not to show We get the closest when you high Or you drunk or you blow So I pour the potion so we can both Get high as we can go Then I'll get the lotion and do something to me When the guys is exposed No turning back now I mean I don't mean to impose Not now but right now I need you to undress and then pose I'm into that now Get your vibe when the doors get closed Roll up the door Henny and Coca-Cola, and I keep com- coming over, cause it's never over. Why everything's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything they told me not to is exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop, man, I tried the best I could, but... Everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good. Everything they told me not to was exactly what I would. Man, I try to stop, man. I try the best I could, but I just wanted to ask you. Just wanted to ask you. Let me have what I put this on. Let's see how all your friends. Remember the one, huh? 
You said if you ever she would be the one. Okay, okay, with my heart. Well, I was thinking hypothetically. I mean, don't take this seriously. Don't take me. I mean, just um, not credibly. I'm feeling incredibly. I mean, I said it, babe. I just let it be. I mean, you are in me. I mean, you are in me. Lying about everything Don't matter if it's small or big Trying to solicit Other countries to election rig Taxes unpaid Network not so high Money laundered Crime after conflicts of interest like trademarks in China, sexual harassment, like grabbing vaginas, spilling intel, putting spies at risk, obstructing justice. He's a thug, he's a crook, he's a president. Crime after crime. When he's gone, well, the book they will draw at him. Crime after crime. He's insane, narcissistic, can't help himself. Crime after crime. When he falls, well, the cops, they will be waiting. Crime after crime. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails. If Russia, if China, if someone else offers you information on opponent, should they accept it or should they call the FBI? I think you might want to listen. China just started an investigation into the Biden. Siding with Putin instead of the CIA. Reducing his debt load by demanding lower interest rates. Secret servers to hide his quid pro Hosting some nits at Mar-a-Lago. He's a con man, a book that's a president. Crime of crime. Pardons dangled. White House aides to break the law. Grammar mangled. He's a grifter, a crook. That's our president. Crime after crime. He's insane, narcissistic, can't help himself. Crime after crime. When he falls, will the cops? They will be waiting. Crime after crime. Crime after crime. What causes, say, heroin addiction? This is a really stupid question, right? It's obvious. We all know it. Heroin causes heroin addiction. Here's how it works. If you use heroin for 20 days, by day 21, your body would physically crave the drug ferociously because there are chemical hooks in the drug. That's what addiction means. But there's a catch. Almost everything we think we know about addiction is wrong. If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. 
diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex, everything a rat about town could want. And they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. If you believe the old theory of addiction, that makes no sense. But if you believe Professor Alexander's theory, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're put into a horrific jungle in a foreign country where you don't want to be, and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, doing heroin is a great way to spend your time. But if you go back to your nice home with your friends and your family, it's the equivalent of being taken out of that first cage and put into a human rat park. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated, or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone. It might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds, to be connected to people you want to be present with. Addiction is just one symptom of the crisis of disconnection that's happening all around us. We all feel it. Since the 1950s, the average number of close friends an American has has been steadily declining. At the same time, the amount of floor space in their homes has been steadily increasing. To choose floor space over friends, to choose stuff over connection. The war on drugs we've been fighting for almost a century now has made everything worse. Instead of helping people heal and getting their life together, we have cast them out from society. We have made it harder for them to get jobs and become stable. We take benefits and support away from them if we catch them with drugs. We throw them in prison cells, which are literally cages. We put people who are not well in a situation that makes them feel worse and hate them for not recovering. 
For too long, we've talked only about individual recovery from addiction. But we need now to talk about social recovery because something has gone wrong with us as a group. We have to build a society that looks a lot more like Rat Park and a lot less like those isolated cages. We are going to have to change the unnatural way we live and rediscover each other. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. This video is a collaboration with Johan Hari, the author of the book Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. He was very kind to work with us on this video to spread the word. We recommend that you give the book a try. Our videos are made there. Now then, in these Asiatic traditions, it is well recognized that people who get the knowledge that you're it may very well run amok. And therefore, they always couple any method of gaining this, whether it is yoga, whether it is uh, smoking something or drinking something or whatever is the method, they always couple it with a discipline. Now, I know the word discipline isn't very popular these days. And uh, I would like to have a new word for it because most people who teach disciplines don't teach them very well. They teach it with a kind of uh, violence, as if a discipline was something that is going to be extremely unpleasant and that you're going to have to put up with. But that's not the real secret of discipline. I would prefer to use the word skill. Discipline is a way of expression. Say you want to express your feelings in stone. Now, stone doesn't give way very easily. It's tough stuff. And so you have to learn the skill or the discipline of the sculptor in order to express yourself in stone. And so in every other way, whatever you do, you require a skill. And it's enormously important to understand that there is absolutely no possibility of having any pleasure in life at all without skill. Money doesn't buy pleasure, ever. Look, if you want to get stoned drunk, and go out and get a bottle of bourbon and down it. You can't do that except for people who have practiced the distiller's art. You can't even make love without art. Where I live in Sausalito, we have a harbor full of ever so many pleasure craft. Motor cruisers, sailing boats, all kinds of things. And they never leave the dock. All that happens with them is their owners have cocktail parties there on Saturdays and Sundays. Because they discovered, having bought these things, that the discipline of sailing is difficult to learn and takes a lot of time. And they didn't have time for it, so they just bought the thing as a status symbol. So, in other words, um, you, you can't have pleasure in life without skill. But it isn't an unpleasant task to learn a skill. If the teacher, in the first place, gets you fascinated with it. There is immense pleasure in learning how to do anything skillfully. To make carpentry things, to cook, to write, to calculate, anything you want can be immensely pleasurable to learn uh, the discipline. And it is completely indispensable. Because look, you may be a very inspired musician. I, I'm not a, a musical technologist, you see, and I regret it, but I'm a word, word technologist. But I can hear in my head 
all kinds of symphonies and all kinds of marvelous compositions, but I don't have the technique to write them down on paper and share them with somebody else. Too bad. Maybe next time around. <laughs> but you see, so far as words are concerned, I can express ideas because I have studied language. And I've worked very hard. Uh, not that I didn't like it. I intensely enjoy the work of writing a book, although it is difficult. But it's fascinating to say what can never possibly be said. <laughs> so, uh, you see what's happening. What you have to do, you have inspiration, but then you have to have technique to incarnate, to express your inspiration. That is to say, to bring heaven down to earth and to express heaven in terms of earth. Of course, they are really one behind the scenes. But... There's no way of pointing it out unless you do something skillful. You see, we are all, at the moment, absolutely in the midst of the beatific vision. We are all uh, one with the divine, or some, I don't like that sort of wishy-washy language, but we are all there, but we are so much there that we're like fish in water. They don't know they're in water. Like the birds don't know they're in the air because it's all around them. And in the same way, we don't know what the color of our eyes is. I don't mean whether you've got blue or brown eyes, but the color of the lens of your eye. You call that transparent, no color. See, because you can't see it. But it's basic to being able to see anything. So in order to find out where you are, there has to be some way of drawing attention to it. And that involves skill. I decided to pursue law enforcement for the basic reason of I had to have a job that gave meaning to my life. I wasn't able to become a police officer when I got out of college because departments weren't hiring women. And so I didn't become a police officer until 15 years later. I felt that I wanted to come in and change, you know, the way that the police department operated and make it more cohesive and integrated and, you know, help people out. I like helping people. I thought that I could do a better job as a police officer than some of the people that I saw doing the job and had interacted with growing up. Um, there is a latitude of power that a police officer has. And I sought to exercise that power for the good of the people that I interacted with, uh, provided you weren't a criminal. <laughs> so my father was a police officer. He worked in um, Motorcycle 2. After I came on the job, my sister came on the job. So it's it was something I always wanted to do. It was very frustrating. That we're talking back in the 70s um, to always be stopped by the police department. And I could say my father was a police officer, but that didn't matter. My experience is that some officers might target African-American kids. Um, I think teenagers in particular, whatever racial characteristics they have, um, 
uh, may be targeted. Would I stop people, uh, uh, four or five black guys that are in uh, a white neighborhood? Yeah, if they're not supposed to be there, I would say, what's up, guys? Even if it's, I'm in a ro- ro- patrol, patrol car, I would roll up on them and say, what's up, guys? What are you doing? And if they gave me an attitude, that would be a that would raise my suspicion. If I see a white kid or a bunch of white kids walking into that neighborhood where they're not supposed to be, there's a couple of things going on. They're there for a fight or they're there for, for drugs or maybe to buy a gun or maybe to, who knows, but they're usually not there. I would stop them. A lot of people would say, well, it's your own fault. If you weren't robbing people, if you weren't shooting each other, you know, the black on black thing. Well, I don't, I never hear white on white crime because there's white on white crime. I never hear that term. But the focus of media and of the departments is upon negative behavior of black people. How many incidents have we had since uh, that Staten Island incident like that? What is it, a year later? One or two? Maybe three? I mean, it's, it's not rampant. It's not, go- it's not out of control. Each one has to be taken on its individual merits. Um, I've not examined directly any of them, but I would say that um, I don't call somebody shoot somebody in the back, a police officer. Um, my inclination is to call them a murderer. I, I say anyone that thinks that the police department is, is going out and they have a, a motive to go and kill black people, white people, Asians, anyone like that is delusional. There is nothing like that. I believe most officers are afraid to talk about the realities of uh, the negative aspects of policing. Number one, they fear that if they're in an incident where they need backup, they call with 1013 and guys figure, well, you're not part of the crew. They won't respond. They won't get backup when they need it. Secondly, I believe a lot of guys are afraid of what the department would try and do to them. So they keep their mouths shut. Just because you're a cop doesn't mean that you don't have rules to follow. And I always felt that you should follow the rules because that could be your family member and you don't want anybody's rights to be violated. I think that we have to recognize that the police are the most obvious object of disdain. However, they're not the problem. They may have problems, but they're not the exclusive problem. And in the precinct that I live in, which happens to be the 77th precinct, they are going to reinstitute this policing where cops are assigned to a certain area and they need to know the business owners, they need to know the people, and people really need to walk up to them and say hi and know the officers too. It works both ways. I don't understand why people just... You know, get a job, go to school. Why, why do you have to protest against the cops? The cops are there to help you. I don't understand why everybody's so angry about something, uh, 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 an order that doesn't exist. It's the responsibility of the white community. It's the responsibility of our leaders to realize black people are not shouting racism and discrimination and exploitation for no reason. They're not marching. They're not... Uh, protesting uh, because they have nothing else to do. Their problems are real. Racism is such a part of the system, of of the network of the American society that people, white and black, don't realize when racism is being executed for them 
or against them. That we've um, obviously touched a raw spot in our national psyche, not just in policing, but in everything else, alarms me, concerns me, and makes me feel that not just the policing community, but every other community needs to take notice. That came out of Newsweek. And this particular article is based off of a study. Now, this study has started looking at the rising death rates among white Americans. And it was speaking about how it's linked to their threat of losing their dominant social status in America. So this was released by the University of Toronto and the researchers, they found that rising mortality in white Americans is partly due to perceptions they are losing their social status in the past two decades. So they say mortality rates seldom rise unless a society is subjected to something disastrous like a major economic crisis, infectious disease, epidemic of war, uh, but there has been an increase in working age mortality rates for just one group in the United States since 1999 at the turn of the century. Okay. It's a, and it's non-Hispanic whites. So the associate professor who was conducting this study stated that he went on to say that it could be the first time that a widespread population health phenomenon cannot be explained by social or economic status disadvantage, okay? And instead driven by a perceived threat of status. Now they said the anxiety, according to this research, of whites is coming from a misperception that their dominant status in society is being threatened, which is manifesting in multiple forms of psychological and physiological stress. So this kind of stress they're talking about is leading to what they say deaths of despair. And say, while mortality rates trend higher for whites, the increased causes of deaths have been due to alcohol consumption, opioid use, opioid overdose, and suicides. As according to the study, rising chronic illnesses, which includes hypertension and obesity, also contributed to this trend. As a status is a major predictor of health, so our team hypothesized that it was a perception among whites that blacks are economically catching up to them. When in fact, income inequality and other socioeconomic factors continue to affect black Americans more unfavorably. Now now listen to this. Let, Let me repeat this one more time. The fear is that black people are catching up economically and that is the problem. Let me, let me tell you something. Let's just talk history here. Everything that's been built in this country came off of the backs of African slaves. Everyone know it. Now, some people don't want to admit it, but it is true. Slavery built America. Slavery built Europe. That's why they have so much wealth above other people because they had the free labor of African slaves. Everything is attached to slavery, everything. And they're not caring about Asians getting higher than them. They're not caring if Arabs, they're not caring if Hispanics, Native Americans, they don't care about that. 
only black people. Do you know why? I've been told this actually by a lot of white people. They've told me many times, the greatest fear for black people to be equal to white people is this. If they not only become equal, but actually get more in number, more in social status, more economically, the greatest fear is what we did to black people, they're going to turn around and do that to us. That is the fear. And this has come from white people to me more than once. Well, the thing is this, black people don't really have that kind of heart. That's not them. I mean, you look at what black folks are doing. They go hug you when you kill black folks. They'd never hug a black person like that. So in my opinion, I think you're good on that. But still the guilt, the shame, and you never made recompense of anything at all. It is a weight on the shoulders. So they feel that in order for us to keep this privilege, we have to have this social status. But see, some of you, and and, and I'm going to tell you this, you kind of say a whole lot of things that even other white people could not even agree with you on. Yes, there is a eight to eighteen and nineteen dollar uh, racial wealth gap for every one black person's dollar. They have about eighteen, nineteen, but that is just an average amount of money. Okay, what all white people benefit from is white privilege. Not all of them are rich, but they have white privilege. White privilege allows you to basically get away with a whole lot of things that black people can't get away with. You know that. I mean, white people really is the only people in America that you could say is free. Black people aren't free in America. And what I determine is free. You can walk down the street and no one calls 911 on you because you just look suspicious. I am alive and Tay is not. And that's white... That's white privilege right there. Because my, my biggest fear. My name is Courtney Miller. I am a criminal defense attorney. Six years ago, I was sitting in my house, in my living room, watching a movie with my boxer, Birdie. The lights were on. I have floor to ceiling windows in the living room. The blinds were up. Anybody who walked by would have seen that I was home. At some point, my dog demanded to go out, and I let her back into the backyard and went back to watch my movie. About five minutes later, I heard her barking furiously, and I went into the kitchen, into the backyard, where I keep my back door open and my storm door shut. And as I walked to the patio, I saw two flashlights flitting across my backyard, in the dark, in the grass. And when I walked out to my patio, I had to yell out, who's back there? And the answer that I got is, it's the police. I am a white woman in a middle-class neighborhood, and the circumstances of my call, the police were called out to a barking dog, not a welfare call, a barking dog. But the police came onto my property. They started flitting around and creeping around stealthily. They did not come to my front door and announce themselves when anybody could have seen that someone was home. Instead, they flitted around, and they were stealthy, and it wasn't until I cried out that they announced themselves as the police. I am alive, and Tay is not.
And that's white, that's white privilege right there. Because my, my biggest fear that night was what if the police shot my dog? And I'm mortified to say that. But after that night, that was my feelings. What if they shot my dog? If I were a black woman in this city, my fear would be, what if they shot me? And that's the reality. You can walk in the store, no one follows you. No police just harass you just because of your color of your skin. No one discriminates against you with housing. No one discriminates against you with education. You don't deal with any of the issues that black people have. So you're the only ones that can actually say you're free in America. You don't have those issues and problems. But everything doesn't attach themselves to that. Because with that, in the past, you got access to a lot of economics. The changes have came rapidly in the past almost about 20 years now, going into this new century. With the creation of the internet, removed a lot of those gatekeepers they used to have, to have certain control. Now you look at black people today, black people are doing a lot more than what they used to do because they don't have the gatekeepers anymore controlling black folks. You look at our show. The gatekeepers wouldn't let us have a show. The gatekeepers have never reached out to us not one time and even come on to even... Um, be a guest contributor what they used to do because they don't have the gatekeepers anymore controlling black folks. You look at our show. The gatekeepers wouldn't let us have a show. The gatekeepers have never reached out to us not one time and even come on to even um, be a guest contributor, even though our platform is where it's at. So it lets you know what they think about us here. So without the creation of the internet, more and more black people are making money. More and more black people are making six-figure salaries, seven-figure salaries. Remember, the despair and, 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 and what's, what they're worried about is black people making more money and black people rising up in status. That's what is causing the fear and, 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 and depression, et cetera. And then automation, they keep telling you automation is coming. White privilege won't fix automation. And let me tell you something. It'll be their own people that's going to cause automation, not black people. The first and foremost, in the 70s, they sent all the jobs to China. Got China out of third world status into first world status. Because of the greed in their own community. Because black people don't control the businesses in this country. Black people don't own the corporations. That's white Americans that own that. So they shipped all their jobs to China and left them just with scrap jobs, okay? Then, in their communities, they suffering too. They suffering in their communities. See, some, some black folks don't really know that. Some these rural communities are living poverty. They don't have anything. They don't have jobs. They, they don't have access to certain things. They may have white privilege, but what good is that? You don't have no money. Now, they have some white folks that's the 1%. They got money all day long, but them, no. Now, comes up to the 2016 election with Donald Trump. 
the main reason that Donald Trump got elected was because it's attached to this. Because Trump say, I'm going to deport these people. I'm going to get them out of here. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to protect our status. And he told him he's going to bring us some jobs. Donald Trump can't reverse what's happening in this country no matter what he tries to do. He can deport everybody he wanted to deport. It's still not going to stop automation. Automation is coming. When you have companies like Amazon open up a grocery store and don't even have a cashier. How many of you went to the different stores like Walmart, Target, etc., and they have self-checkout? That's phasing out jobs. Fast food with kiosk is phasing out jobs all due to automation. So it's coming. Now continuing, even though automation is coming, black folks will be okay. We always know how to make it. We always know how to make a dollar out of 15 cents because we that's been our position here in America. While others have enjoyed privilege, while others have benefited off of our backs, and even still to this day, you're benefiting off of slave labor in prisons. The day is coming where all that has to end. And either you're going to be like what the Bible teach, you work or you don't eat. That's really where it's going to be at. They always try to demonize black people on social programs, but understand something. In these rural areas, they're more on social programs than black folks could have ever been on. If you actually start doing the research, See, they don't like to talk about these rural areas in Mississippi and Alabama and, and all these Kentucky and all these places like that. That's on food stamps and welfare. They see, they don't like to see black people, you know, with the racist, they don't like seeing black people at all living good, taking y'all going to Africa now and y'all doing videos in uh, China and Japan and y'all making videos in South America. They know it costs money to travel like that. And they might. You could have got a deal out of this world. You could have been on. They see, they don't like to see black people, you know, with the racist, they don't like seeing black people at all living good, taking y'all going to Africa now and y'all doing videos in uh, China and Japan and y'all making videos in South America. They know it costs money to travel like that. And they mind, they know it, even though you could have got a deal out of this world, you could have been on, uh, sky scanner or, or all the different apps out there to save, you know, money. But to them, that's a big thing for you to be traveling like that. All you black people are, are doing more things. Now black people opening companies, black people are doing a lot. And while black people are doing that, it's being watched. They say, wait a minute, I'm losing my place in society. The statement is how is it the group of people that we have always mistreated ever since we have brought them here and those that were already here that we grounded up as slaves. How did we sit here and get to this point where they are starting to rise now? And ever since the turn of the 21st century, we're noticing our decline. Ended the Trump rally in Florida and during the rally, an all too common theme came up supporters who are threatening violence if anything happens to Donald Trump. Take a look. 
We will not let somebody take down our Constitution. I swore an oath back in 1973 to defend this country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if it comes to domestic, that's what I do. If the UN comes in here, there are foreign invaders in our country, and I will do what I got to do to stand up for them. And you called yourself a militia just by me with guns? If that's what it takes. The militia is, look at the farmers back in the day. They didn't have guns. They used fish forks and whatever they had available to them. Today, everybody's got guns. What's going to happen is if the thing starts here and we have a civil war, people are going to have to pick what side they're on. Me, I want our country to stay the way it is. I want it to be free. I want my children to grow up in a free country. I want them to be able to take themselves and not be force-fed the information they put in schools. I don't want them on their knees waving Allah. I mean, we're America. This is what we got to fight for. That's what it comes down to. So he is not an isolated case. Uh, we've done stories featuring uh, right-wing members of the media, including people like Ben Shapiro, for instance, uh, pushing this notion that if you try to take our guns away, we're going to meet uh, law enforcement at the door with our guns. There are threats of civil war. I mean, all this nonsense coming from the right and uh, there are members, like militia people, who are uh, training in, like, the forest. That you were talking about that off camera, Ida. And it's true. Like, they really think, no, if anything happens to Trump, if he actually does get impeached and removed, uh, we're going to fight back, which is terrifying. But what's also terrifying is if he actually does lose his reelection then they're going to think that the system's rigged. I mean, he primes them with that nonsense and that misinformation. And who knows if they actually will carry out this violence, but it is terrifying because some of them are unhinged. But you know what's funny is like the argument with people with the guns when they're like, um, you can't take my guns and they'll have like three guns in the house, the, 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 the military and the law enforcement. You honestly think you're going to win the fight? <laughs> Did you see in Dallas when they had that robot thing come out and and we were like, what the heck is that? Do you honestly think that your little, your little guns that you have at home with your crew can take out a military that is trained to fight countries? So when I see these people talking about this, what are you going to do, go fight civilians who have no power in, in affecting what's happening to you? Or are you going up against the government because you think they're trying to take away your rights? That's the thinking that I don't understand, you know, and, and, and we just can't give them, we can't give them, we can't feed the flame with them because that's the foolishness that continues to feed the fear. And then we walk around like this and that is what runs the country when we let them do that. And you're right, we played that, the mashup that Jordan Yule made of right-wing figures talking about a civil war. And the question I have is, where does that idea come from? Mm -hmm. And does it come from the original militia that started uh, voicing that while watching Ben Shapiro, while watching whoever the other people's names are, um, and then said that in the comment section? And then Ben is looking for things, other things to say to cater to the audience and kind of build that support because he's financially dependent on it. And he starts feeding into it. Mm -hmm. And then people who hadn't come from that militia and written that in the comment section see it from Ben Shapiro. And then Ben Shapiro starts inciting other people to behave this way. And what you heard was a radicalized person. That's yeah. a radicalized... Absolutely. He's radicalized. Right. He is ready to take arms against the sea of nothing. Because what is America... He's like, I want to keep America the way it is. I don't want them to end up bowing and praying to Allah. Well, 
America right now, they don't have to do that. No, You're no. making that up. That's not how America is. America now is people who want to pray to Allah, pray to Allah. The people who want to pray to our, our fun Jewish God do that too. And they're pretty upset because Hanukkah's during Christmas this year and it's weird. <laughs> And Allah is just another word for God. Yeah. So when they're praying, I know, I know. But like, same people in the books. It's the same characters. So this is a vicious cycle of the media fear mongering, right? Like the media, right wing media specifically, has been fear mongering about Muslims in this country for a while now. And so this guy is at home, right? Like terrified of the Muslims forcing him to practice Sharia law, even though there's no indication that that's happening in any part of this country. But what's also really interesting is we do have uh, theocracy ruling parts of this country right now as we speak. You have various states passing incredibly restrictive abortion laws. Mm -hmm. And so abortion is supposed to be legal up to some point, but you have heartbeat laws, you have all these nonsense laws that essentially outright ban abortion in the states goes against the Supreme Court ruling, of course. But what do they always cite in doing that? They cite their religion in a country that's supposed to be for a separation of church and state, which is in what? Where is that cited? In our constitution, the same constitution that this guy says he's willing to kill people to protect. If you care about, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if you care about the Constitution, you should acknowledge the fact that the president that you're so enamored with is taking a giant dump on it on a daily basis, period. But that's, that's, again, we're having a conversation with people who don't care about the evidence and the facts. So why get riled up? And also, why make the assumption that they see women as equals because that kind of thinking probably doesn't. They want to identify with the original people who created the Constitution, which were white men, straight white men, and women are, you know, property. that We we always like to criticize the Middle East and their practices when it comes to women or, or these religions, but we treat our women kind of... I mean, all, all we do here is grab them by the Without yeah, even asking, yep. right? That's all we do here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> Direct quote from the president of the United States of America. Exactly. Yeah. I was just saying, like, the, and the founders were kind of British people. They were still technically British. So when they said freedom of speech, they're like, you can say whatever you want, but you probably wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you probably wouldn't. You probably have some decency about it. Thanks for watching The Young Turks. Really appreciate it. Another way to show support is through course. YouTube Apparently, memberships. Millennials, as a you get to interact with those people who were born approximately. Uh, 1984 and after um, uh, are tough to manage and they're accused of being entitled and narcissistic and self-interested unfocused lazy <laughs> but entitled is the big one and uh, and because they confound leadership so much what's happening is leaders are asking the millennials what do you want and millennials are saying we want to work in a place with purpose, love that. Um, we want to make an impact, you know, whatever that means. Um, uh, we want free food and bean bags. Uh, and so, somebody articulates some sort of purpose. There's lots of free food and there's bean bags, and yet for some reason, they are still not happy. And that's because um, you, they're missing. There's there's a there's a missing piece. Um, what I've learned is that there, I can break it down into four pieces, right? There are four, four things, four characteristics. One is parenting, 
The other one is uh, technology. The third is impatience. And the fourth is environment. The generation that we call the millennials, too many of them grew up um, subject to, not my words, failed parenting strategies, you know, where, for example, they were told that they were special all the time. They were told that they could have anything they want in life just because they want it, right? They were told, um, uh, some of them got into um, honors classes, not because they deserved it, but because their parents complained. And some of them got A's, not because they earned them, but because the teachers didn't want to deal with the parents. Some kids got participation medals. You got a medal for coming in last, right? Which the science we know is pretty clear, which is it devalues the medal and the reward for those who actually work hard. And that actually makes the person who comes in last feel embarrassed because they know they didn't deserve it. So it actually makes them feel worse, right? So you take this group of people and they graduate school and they get a job and they're thrust into into the real world. And in an instant, they find out they're not special. Their moms can't get them a promotion. Um, that you get nothing for coming in last. And by the way, you can't just have it because you want it, right? And in an instant, their entire self-image is shattered. And so you have an entire generation that's growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations. The other problem to compound it is we're growing up in a Facebook, Instagram world. In other words, we're good at putting filters on things. We're good at showing people that life is amazing even though I'm depressed, right? And so everybody sounds tough and everybody sounds like they got it all figured out. And the reality is there's very little toughness and most people don't have it figured out. And so when the more senior people say, well, what should we do? They sound like, this is what you got to do. And they have no clue. (laughs) So you have an entire generation growing up with lower self-esteem than previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own, through no fault of their own, right? They were dealt a bad hand, right? Now let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good, right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if... And if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it. It's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive, Right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. (laughs) But that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high-stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us. It allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe, right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives. And we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people quite by accident discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope 
with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains. And for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person. They will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress. That's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks, right? What's happening is because we're allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired. And what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends. They don't rely on their friends. They have fun with their friends. But they also know that their friends will cancel on them if something better comes along. Deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set. And worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person. They're turning to a device. They're turning to social media. They're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook, right? These things balanced. Alcohol is not bad. Too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun. Too much gambling is dangerous, right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance, right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now, right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted, right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse, right? So you have a generation growing up with lower self-esteem that doesn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress, right? Now you add in the sense of impatience, right? They've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something? You go on Amazon, it arrives the next day. You want to watch a movie? Log on and watch a movie. You don't check movie times. You want to watch a TV show? Binge. You don't even have to wait week to week to week, Right? I know people who skip seasons just so they can binge at the end of the season, right? <laughs> Instant gratification. You want to go on a date, you don't even have to learn how to be like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have to learn and practice that skill. You don't have to be the uncomfortable one who says, says yes when you mean no and says no when you mean no and yes when you... You don't have to swipe right. Bang, I'm a stud. <laughs> right? You don't have to learn the social coping mechanisms, right? Everything you want, you can have instantaneously. Everything you want, instant gratification. Except job satisfaction and strength of relationships, there ain't no app for that. They are slow, meandering, uncomfortable, messy processes. And so I keep meeting these wonderful, fantastic, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids. They've just graduated school. They're in their entry-level job. I sit down with them and I go, how's it going? They go, I think I'm going to quit. I'm like, why? They're like, I'm not making an impact. I'm like, you've been here eight months. <laughs> you know? It's as if they're standing at the foot of a mountain and they have this abstract concept called impact that they want to have in the world, which is the summit. What they don't see is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so what this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things that really, really matter like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, 
a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time. Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain or you will, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario, and we're already seeing it, the worst case scenario is we're seeing an increase in suicide rates. We're seeing an increase in this generation. We're seeing an increase in accidental deaths due to drug overdoses. We're seeing more and more kids drop out of school or take leaves of absence due to depression. Unheard of. These are all, this, is, this is really bad. The best case scenario, the best, those are all bad cases, right? The best case scenario is you'll have an entire population growing up and going through life and just never really finding joy. They'll never really find deep, deep fulfillment in work or in life. They'll just, just waft through life and it'll be just, it's fine. How, how, how's your job? It's fine. It's the same as yesterday. How's your relationship? It's fine. Like that's, that's the best case scenario which leads me to the, the fourth point, which is environment, which is we're taking this amazing group of young, fantastic kids who are just dealt a bad hand. It's no fault of their own. And we put them in corporate environments that care more about the numbers than they do about the kids. They care more about the short-term gains than the long-term life of this young human being. We care more about the year than the lifetime, right? And so we are putting them in corporate environments that aren't helping them build their confidence, that aren't helping them learn the skills of cooperation, that aren't helping them overcome the challenges of a digital world and finding more balance, that isn't helping them overcome the need to have instant gratification and teach them the joys and impact and the fulfillment you get from working hard over on something for a long time that cannot be done in a month or even in a year. And so we're thrusting to them, them in corporate environments. And the worst part about it is they think it's them. They blame themselves. They, can't, they think it's them who can't deal. And so it makes it all worse. It's not. I'm here to tell them it's not them. It's the corporations. It's the corporate environments. It's the total lack of good leadership in our world today that is making them feel the way they do. They were dealt a bad hand. And, it's, and I hate to say it, but it's the company's responsibility. Sucks to be you. Like we have no choice, Right. This is what we got. And I wish that society and their parents did a better job. They didn't. So we're, gonna, we're getting them in our companies, and we now have to pick up the slack. We have to work extra hard to figure out the ways that we build their confidence. We have to work extra hard to find ways to teach them social, the social skills that they're missing out on. I'm Lucy. I'm seven years old, and my mom posts pictures of me on Inst- online. <laughs> I'm Elmer. I'm 18 years old. My mom shares too much about me online. I'm Zoya. I'm 16 years old, and my mom shares my whole life. If you're gonna be so worked up about it, then I'll take it down. But I don't agree with you, just for the record. Why are we here today? Talk about the photos. And Fable? Yes. Por qué? Let me show you a few. This. What's the big deal? I think you look so cute and it was a nice moment. What's wrong with it? Because you didn't ask. I also think of it as connecting to other people that I know in real life, you know? Like, just think, like, Abu and Grandpa, like, how else do they know about you guys except to see you there? 
you can call and FaceTime. Yeah. You can you can do many other stuff to see them instead of social media. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. By age five, the average kid has one thousand five hundred photos of them online. Y por esas fotos estamos aquí, ¿no? Technically, yes. <laughs> no lo puedes cambiar. O sea, ustedes son mi orgullo. No pueden cambiar nada. It's a photo where I'm shirtless and I'm not ready for a photo. Yo pienso que todos los, todos los papás hacemos eso. Yo la subo. Yo no veo nada malo. Tú, tú tienes ropa abajo. Mm-hmm. Está todo privado y solo mis amistades y mi familia pueden ver todo. All la... it takes is one person and one hack. And there goes all your privacy. Remember when I was getting my debit card? No, but no puse los números de tu. No, I know you didn't, but it was it was like the the, the number, como el address estaba ahí. No, ahí no está el address. No, sí, pero como papeles que dicen mi nombre completo, tú sabes cosas que son privados. Posiblemente sí, eso sí, tuvo mal de de mi parte. By 2030, parents sharing about their kids online will account to two thirds of identity fraud. so worried about the sauce on the face photo like what is it going to do that is like wrecking everybody's life in their imagination i think the sauce on the face photo that's just an embarrassing photo but you know the photo of me in a bathing suit someone out there could look at my body and think something of me that i wouldn't want them to think but you go on the beach in those clothes and strangers could take photos of you on the beach and do what they want with those photos but you're my parent. You're my mom. Right. Yeah, I, I would think about that, yeah. You would. So now you would say that you would consider. I would, uh, maybe. Not really. Unless we stop taking vacations together and stop having good times together. It would actually, honestly, would be depressing if I couldn't document it for Insta. If it's not on Insta, it didn't even happen. You really feel that way? Yeah, because, yeah. So do you think kids should have veto power, the ability to say, please take that down? You have to. I absolutely think the kids should have veto power. And again, it's because of how aware I am of the implications of the digital footprint that I say that. Some facts. In France, kids can sue their parents for sharing too much about them. I mean, I, what, what should I say? They just don't know what they're doing, France. If I had asked you about that picture, would you be okay if it goes to you? Uh, yes. Oh, really? So it's actually about the asking, not about yeah. the picture itself. Uh-huh. Posting any private information or anything online should be uh, my call. I really... Try to limit the amount of things I aggravate you with. And if a photo or an upload is causing so much aggravation, is it worth it? It's probably not. So I understand what you're coming from. Ten surprising uses for hydrogen peroxide you need to know. Number one, treat sinus infections. This gentle method will safely eliminate infections, clear up congestion, and relieve the condition. 
To clear up your nasal passages, mix four parts of water and one part food-grade hydrogen peroxide. Put the mixture in a nasal spray bottle, spray it into your nose, and after a moment or so, blow it right back out. You can even irrigate your nose using this solution with a neti pot. Number two, antiseptic mouthwash. Bad breath is a condition that many people suffer with. Commercial mouthwashes only mask the smell and dry out the mouth, making the issue even worse. Instead, mix an equal part of water and hydrogen peroxide and use it as a mouthwash. It will kill germs that cause bad breath and gently whiten teeth over time. If you happen to suffer from tonsil stones, gargle daily with a 50-50 mixture of water and hydrogen peroxide for at least 30 seconds. You should notice that the stones vanish within a week or two. Number three, clear up acne. Pimples and clot pores are downright embarrassing regardless of your age. To clear up your skin, use hydrogen peroxide mixed with water as a facial rinse or toner. Hydrogen peroxide has antibacterial properties and a drying effect on the skin. It will kill bacteria that cause acne and it will also disinfect and tighten your pores, giving you a much clearer and younger looking complexion. Number four, remove earwax. To remove dried up earwax, simply soak a cotton ball with hydrogen peroxide. Then lie down on your side and put a few drops into your ear. You will immediately notice that the hydrogen peroxide starts to fizzle or bubble, and it may feel ticklish or itchy. This is the hydrogen peroxide activating, breaking down the wax buildup. After about 5 to 10 minutes or when the bubbling stops, stand up and drain your ear. Then repeat these steps with your other ear. Number 5. Treat Foot Fungus Foot fungus, or athlete's foot, is a fungal infection that affects the skin on the feet. This infection can spread onto the toenails and hands, and it is contagious. To stop this embarrassing fungal growth, combine equal parts of hydrogen peroxide and water in a dark-colored spray bottle. Next, apply this solution to the affected area on your feet or hands every night until the fungus clears up. Number 6. Disinfect Children's Toys Let's face it, children drool and they tend to put just about everything in their mouth, especially during the first few years of their lives. Hydrogen peroxide is a safe cleaning alternative to use around children compared to commercial cleaning products that are harsh and often cause lung irritations. By regularly disinfecting kids' toys and playing areas with hydrogen peroxide, you'll keep germs and bacteria away. Number 7. Get rid of musty odors. Kitchen and bath towels are notorious for getting that unpleasant musty odor over time. Ugh. You can get rid of these funky odors by washing your towels in a mixture of hydrogen peroxide and plain white vinegar. Number 8. Whiten laundry. Have you ever noticed some yellowing around the collar or armpit areas of your white shirts? Or are your favorite whites looking more like ivory these days? To revitalize your yellowed garments, add a cup of hydrogen peroxide to a basin filled with water and let the fabric soak for a good 15 to 30 minutes. Then wash as regular. Number 9. All-Purpose Cleaner Hydrogen peroxide is a safe and cheap alternative to commercial cleaning products. It can be used as a standalone solution or mixed with water. It's great for cleaning kitchen and bathroom surfaces, including tiles, sinks, toilet bowls, bathtubs, and showers. You can even whiten the grout between your tiles by making a thick paste of hydrogen peroxide and flour. Apply it directly onto the grout, cover it with plastic wrap overnight, and rinse it clean in the morning. If mold seems to be an issue, you can spray hydrogen peroxide regularly on areas where mold and mildew are present. This will stop fungal growth and remove discoloration. Number 10. Clean fruits and veggies and preserve freshness. 
Commercially grown produce are heavily sprayed with all kinds of pesticides and fungicides. To get rid of these toxic chemicals and to preserve freshness, soak your fruits and vegetables in a sink full of water and a quarter cup of food-grade hydrogen peroxide for about 20 minutes. Rinse and dry them properly before storing. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to like and share this video and subscribe for more. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Real Life Radio Show. I'm your host, Jenna Kepra, alongside my partner, Brother Roz. Greetings, Brother Roz. How are you doing this evening? Hey, greetings to you and the other calls and listeners. I'm still learning, still learning. How's everything on your end? Same as well, still learning. Uh, December the December the 3rd. We are almost done with this year, man. And tonight we are here this Tuesday evening to discuss addiction going into 2020. Just hoping we have a better understanding of it. Before we even get started, let me. uh... Addiction. Oh, they tricked me. I thought it was going to run the whole thing out. The fact. (laughs) Condition of being addicted to a particular substance, thing, or activity, not just a drug. Uh, what would you like to start on with the clips tonight? Uh, have so many to go into. Um, I'm going to have, have you take the lead. You pick up where you want and we just run through them. Well, I want to, uh, man. Okay. First one I want to attack tonight would be the uh, the civil war that's going on, that's getting ready to happen, that we actually discussed several times over the years since we've been broadcasting, that these white people have about nothing. I mean, of course, we can say because of uh, racism, white supremacy, but like the woman on the uh, video stated, like, who are you going after? If the government touched uh, Donald Trump, who are you planning to go shoot, drag, and or hang? Is it the government or is the, to me, the black people that are uh, around your living areas, or is it the government? Now, what did you take from that? I think this, when you go through the history of this country, everything is blamed on black people. And there's not a thing that white people need very little reason to go on what I call safari hunting in this country. One of the last times we saw it take place um, was during Katrina. When you go to the the Danzinger Bridge incident, and you had um, white people just shooting unarmed black people because they didn't want them coming through their na- their neighborhoods, even though they were running from the, the rising water. So they were running for their lives. There was no place else for them to go except through these this, this white town on their way to safety. And the white people started just picking them off. Um, and for me, I think just looking at the history of white people, you read a book like, um, like uh, The Delectable Negro. And that theme of blaming black people and white people just severely terrorizing, abusing 
and and just tearing flesh out of black people and then seasoning them. And in that book, you'll read instances where black people were blamed for things that either they couldn't control, like white people set them up in order to be able to abuse them at a later time, or they were put in impossible situations and were given an offer they couldn't confuse, refuse that would end in their being torn to shreds with a whip, you know, and just severely abused. So I think that when he's talking what he's talking about, I think he's going to talk about taking out black folks and probably taking out any other non-white group. He he probably hates Jewish people as well. I mean, he he just seems like one of those extreme right-wing um, Christian white wasp type of people <clears throat> and they tend to have it have you know enmity towards all non-white groups that do not belong to their specific white group but their most intense vitriol is reserved for black people and jewish people so i just see it and i've always said this i just see them going on a free-for-all just like when you go to the gangs in new york a lot of those those scenes were actually true. They were they were what happened when you saw the the white folks going into the black parts of town, dragging people out their house, burning burning their houses down, shooting them in the streets, hanging them from light lamp posts. That's what happened. That actually happened in New York City. A lot of people don't know about that. But and it happened across the country. It was all the major cities, Detroit, all the way to the West Coast. It was during the Great Migration. White people were told that black people were running from down south to take their jobs. And they needed to do something about it. And they started killing them, just wholesale in the street. Wherever they saw a black person, they were killing them on sight. And that happened across this country. And then remember the clip we played months ago, earlier this year, where you had the, the black people who had been living in those northern cities for a while, and they started talking about the fresh batch of southern people that were moving up. There were more black people yeah. who were migrating. And they were talking about those new arrival black people, like the white people were talking yeah. about them. The whole attitude was like, these Southern guys are about to ruin what we got. We, we've been up here for some time. We've been able to go to school, speak with, with better diction, uh, speak better English, get a, you know, really embed ourselves in what they believe was, was the white culture. And then bang, now we got more of y'all bandits moving up here about to ruin everything for us. So this is some, this is a theme. This has happened for many generations in this country. And in some cases, it was black people also participating in denigrating and disrespecting other black people because they happen to make the decision to move north first before the rest of them. And some of them were mixed race, but they were a lot of just regular black folks that were that had the same exact mentality about the new arrival blacks from the South as the white people did when they arrived here. Well, uh, referencing that particular video, you know, it was a few of them that was like, we, we worked our butt offs to get away from them. So yep. it's funny because when but, you look at that, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I've seen everything you described. That's that's so you seen the same thing I seen out of that because that described oh. everything: the dragging, uh, the hanging, and just the uh, the murdering. Mm-hmm. You when you was describing when you was describing it though, it, it took me over to uh, it took me over to the video where. Uh, What's his name? Phil. I can't. I can't think of what yeah. his name is. Phil, Phil from the Advice Show. Yes, the Advice yes. Show. Not uh-huh. called that no more. But when it went to him, and he was talking about uh, just the uh, the empathy that they don't have 
and it's crazy because uh for the few black people that are uh doing better now we have to uh we have to empathize not them having empathy but we have to empathize with them murdering themselves because this is uh what he was speaking of was part of that uh that epi- the uh the opium epidemic yeah. uh this is one of the tactics that they use and then we have to be worried about it while simultaneously being abused yeah they humanize white people and black people have been conditioned to see white people as the epitome of humanity and to see other black people as devils we see them as jesus they pay us any attention no matter how minuscule it is as long as it's positive a lot a lot of us will bask in the rays of the attention of white folks and then if and if anything happens with a black person they get the most merciless treatment you can ever think of i actually wrote that in my notes I actually, I, exactly what I wrote. I said, white folks have nothing to worry about in regards to retribution from blacks. Blacks are the biggest threat to themselves above all else, not white people, because that's what we have seen. We have seen the way, the only people who we treat with extreme prejudice is other black people. Period. It is unheard of, very, very, almost, almost unheard of, completely unheard of for black people to be mad at a white person who kills one of their relatives. In this modern era, this is not, and this is a more new thing. So I don't want people to think that that was always happening in this country. That's a that's a very new phenomenon. It's a recent phenomenon, but it seems all pervasive with the the examples that we have in recent history, where that has been the case. But it's it's it's, it's just a it's just a to me it's just a byproduct of that that psychosocial conditioning in the last few generations, and the success of um, film, and especially media and social media to severely dehumanize black people and intensely humanize white people in a way in which I think the younger generations who are much more susceptible to the different types of access to these things, because most people have, like the guy said in the video tonight, it's just uncensored access. So you have a depressed group of young people who have full access to the most addictive thing on earth, their cell phone. And there's no checks and balances about how they interact with that device by the parents. So they just become pretty much addicted adults, as we heard in the Sherrington clip, you know, so it, it, it's real deep, it, it, it's deep. But I just think that um, that that's the greatest, that we're the greatest threat to ourselves, and it just has a lot to do with us being conditioned not to like ourselves. I remember Dr. Clark used to talk about that intensely, about Black people. The only friends Black people have is Black people, and the only way that we can uh, make headway as far as collectively coming to decisions that can improve our condition as far as to love what we see in the mirror. And when he meant the mirror, he not only meant the literal mirror when you're looking at yourself, because there's a lot of us who hate exactly what we see in the mirror for real, for real. And then he was also speaking about the mirror in the form of other black people, seeing yourself in other black people and being able to humanize them and put yourself in their shoes and being more understanding because we're ultra understanding with anyone that's non-black. But when it comes to black people, we reserve the harshest, most extremely prejudicial treatment for other black people. Yeah, real, real quick. I'm, I don't know what you've done, but we have a shout out to all of the callers and listeners. Uh, first yeah. off. But uh, I don't know if they're waiting to speak or if you just didn't hit the mute all button. Oh, I think I did, but let me let me do that and then we'll see at that point who's um twenty one second. I think I had trouble with it earlier. Hold on. 
Okay, I just just hit it, and if it don't work, then that's fine. I, I was just wanting you to uh, check that anyway. But uh, just moving on, I I thought that yeah, the uh, clip about the children was uh, super interesting mm-hmm. because these are things that we discuss as far as uh, not putting our own images up, and Absolutely. and you know some of us some of us uh, operate in that lane. As far as uh, sharing things, whether it be uh, our thoughts and our values on social media and, and everywhere else, or if it's that we're showing our actual images, but uh, never. Now we don't say this. Everybody that uh, that's listening right now, they don't say this to somebody else about putting their image up on something without their permission. And it was interesting to hear these children voice how they feel about having their images up there because all of this stuff is real as far as uh cyberbullying, uh identity theft, all of those issues are very real in this time and it seemed like the parents was was very disconnected when uh these children was asking them about that. I think that especially the East Indian mother, I think that they were addicted to sharing information about their children, especially well, the said, mother. She said that she would be depressed if she yes. couldn't do it anymore. Exactly. And I felt like the children were more intelligently codified than the parents were in regards to just wanting to protect their image and protect their information. It was incredible to hear these young children thinking so far ahead. And then they had at one point, they said that by 2030, Sherrington will account for two-thirds of identity fraud, which is pretty much identity theft. Think about that. So two-thirds of identity fraud by 2030 is going to be from parents sharing information about their children and photographs of of their children all the time. You're going to have a generation of children who grow up on the Internet, literally, because their parents are going to be posting everything about them. So from the time they're born, you're going to have pictures of that. And every birthday and every event and every every milestone, they're going to have it all recorded. Yeah, Yo, you remember how hard it was to find out something about one of the uh, the guys or the girls when you was in school yes. because they caught you slipping and, and embarrassed you? Yep. Now, just the, <laughs> the availability of all of that stuff with the uh, just the knowledge of somebody's real name. Oh, yeah. And you got to have to remember, too, that there's going to be a very high suicide factor because, it, like, these children are not emotionally equipped to deal with stress, like the the other video said. They're not emotionally equipped to deal with being terrorized online if they have a picture where other people think they look goofy and they just, you know, mass attack and assault them online. They may not be mentally ready for that. And you're going to have more people committing suicide. You're, that's one of the reasons that Instagram is working on removing the, the being able to see likes and, and, and things like that. And I went to a conference dealing with that. It was a mental health conference with my job. And one thing they said was that people who don't have a lot of friends or don't get a lot of responses, they feel like they are inadequate. And a lot of them tend to become suicidal. If they don't make enough online friends fast enough, they get depressed about that. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of fragile, fragile people in the state of high addiction, and it takes absolutely nothing to push them over the tipping point to hurting themselves. Or so somebody, 
Right, and but yet they have unfettered access to the most addictive thing that is non-substance related in human history. It's 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 deep, but that that particular clip I think was quite informative in regards to the control because we took in my family we took the opposite approach to to our child. We we didn't put any pictures of him online like that period and we monitored his use of everything from video games to the internet we and he had a set amount of time that he could utilize it and after that he had to do something else either go outside and play do some physical activity um or read a book but he had to get off those devices or get off that video game and 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 we've had discussions and i've talked about this previously on our program probably a few years ago about the fact that when my son was coming up he said a lot of what they said in the video about the millennials and their inability to form lasting relationships. He would talk about calling certain people in school or certain friends he had, and they would actually pick up the phone and then hang up on them and start texting. They had no ability or want to have an actual conversation. So they might be talking about a school project that was coming up that was going to be due soon. And instead of actually picking up the phone and having a conversation about who's going to coordinate with what to contribute to the project, they want to have an intense and in detailed conversation like that through texting. And my son would end up having to tell them more. People call him and he would text him and say, pick up the damn phone. And then he would say, I'm not going to text the Bible back and forth with you. We need to have a discussion about this. And he would have to force them to actually have a conversation. And I know adults, some adults that are like that. So, so human beings are being fundamentally changed by our interaction with these devices. You also have the fact, something Dr. Wilson talked about that I've seen more coming up about in recent years as well, the fact that staring at these small screens narrows your field of vision. Yeah. So people are being born nearsighted automatically because we're not using our distance vision. Our ancestors had to survey the landscape on the savanna to make sure they weren't predators hiding in the tall grass. That's why we had the, 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 the binocular vision. And it was highly acute and attuned to colors, being able to differentiate colors, because it helped us to discern dissonant patterns in nature that could potentially be a predator. We don't use those skills anymore. We don't use that vision. For the most part, we're staring at a small screen on the train. We're staring at a small, small screen on the job. We're staring at a small, small screen at home. So everywhere we go, we have these little screens in front of us. And not only does it narrow your actual visual perception, it narrows your consciousness, in my opinion. It really pigeonholes the way that you think in a way that most of us are not able to consciously perceive that we're in uh, trapped in a particular state of mind that, that's not becoming to us growing and developing further. Like I've always said, when you have a glass that's full, you can't pour anything into it. So anyone who's so full of knowledge, they're, they're unteachable because you have to empty that, that glass or empty your mind of all of those thoughts and concepts to some degree, to allow new stuff in. Otherwise, talking to someone in, in, in that full state is like talking to a brick wall. Nothing's going to penetrate. They're just in a, in a self-fulfilling prophecy of confirmation bias. So you have to be open to that. And I think when you use these devices and you're addicted to those devices, you hear it in the, in the adult parent telling her daughter, I'm going to be depressed if I don't post pictures of you. She's addicted. And she doesn't even know she's addicted. But anybody who knows what addiction is when it comes to these devices and heard her section of the conversation would say she's absolutely addicted, hopelessly addicted. 
And her daughter's going to have to be very careful because her identity will probably be stolen, and it won't be her fault. Man, it, it, man, it put a pause on all of us to just even think about that. And that still ain't taking into account the pedophiles and, and child sex predators. And the uh, the East Indian woman, mm-hmm. she, she uh, kind of alluded to that. She was like all of the strangers that's mm-hmm. on the and the and the little girl had to tell her, but you my mama though. Thank you. You're supposed to be doing everything you can to protect that child. And the internet is the wild, wild west, proverbially speaking. It's an anything goes addictive mechanism that was created for the total control and domination of the world sees and thinks about many, many, many things. And unless you're able to uh, empty your glass a little bit to allow new stuff in in order to process things in a way that's more holistic, you're going to be just one of those mindless people with a hive mind. When something new comes on, you ride the wave and you're in it to win it with everybody else, but re- really don't understand what you're in it to win <laughs> or what what's at the end of it is just the newest thing. Yeah. I mean, just like any other fad, you know, pretty much <laughs> it's, it's just digital now. Uh, but moving on, man, I wanted to, uh, cause it seemed like this, uh, I don't know if he was an ex slave catcher or what he didn't, he didn't particularly make it distinct when he was talking, but in, uh, the conversations about race with the, uh, with the slave Police. catchers yeah. and that, that white man said, uh, why are people complaining about something that don't exist? <laughs> Yeah, that kind of that that one phrase right there captured uh, the whole meaning of that. Because I when I when you sent me the the uh, video, and I seen that it was gonna be a conversation, black and white. That one yeah. phrase right there summed it up for me. Thank you. <laughs> I think so too. I think you chose the right one. I think you chose the right one. Um, those police officers, they gave a lot of perspective, and just about all the black ones wanted to do something positive. They joined the police force with an idea of making things Addition. better or, or balance, yeah, or balance, which is my father-in-law, same thing. He went into corrections and stuff, hoping to, to, to change the, the racial mistreatment. And when he got there and he experienced uh, Jersey-style white supremacy, he was quickly told, he quick, quickly understood that, yeah, that's not happening. This institutional situation is not happening. So all I could do is help some of these black inmates and treat them with as much dignity and respect as possible. So my father, my father-in-law is one of those people that was highly respected by both the, the other COs and the prisoners. He had, you know, he had run into very famous uh prisoners. Uh, Frank Lucas was one that was up in the jail in Trenton with him, as well as uh, Hurricane, uh, Hurricane Carter. And he told me, one thing he told me about Carter, he said, so he said that some people who come in prison from day one when you see them, you know they're innocent. And he said Carter was that dude. And he said in the very beginning for a few months, he was very depressed and he would stay in his cell and would not actually want to leave the cell or interact with anyone. And it was almost like a, just a stage of just like disbelief that he was in prison for a crime he didn't commit and just i guess trying to process that in his mind and he said after he would actually go and talk with him sometimes they would pray together in the cell and just have conversation he said he was extremely intelligent and a really good guy and after a while he was you know he was able to pretty much talk with him get him out of his cell and from there was he was straight 
never had any problems. He was always helpful with people. But that was a story I, I remember quite vividly. I remember he had a Frank Lucas story too, um, and they had to check him because he was he was having. He said every weekend the most beautiful women would come to the prison, with minked out in the winter time, with all just decked out like they were going to some sort of um, gangster ball. But he was like these. Some of these were very very famous, but just beautiful women. And he said that he had to pull him to the side and said, Frank, this is not Harlem. Like, this is jail. You can't have this sort of stuff going on. You don't run stuff here. And Frank toned it down out of respect. And it was just interesting to hear him talk about these some of these experiences he had. So, um, yeah, I think the police go in. And some black people, they go in and they think they want to do, they really want to do the right thing. They want to be helpful. But then they realize that it's just racism is all pervasive. And a lot of the, especially with the police force, like they said in the clip, if a black police officer speaks out about the negative aspects of being a police officer and he's in a situation where his life is in danger, they'll let you get killed. Yeah, it so, gets yeah. And that was similar to what the, that was similar to what the old white lady was uh, saying. You know, she, yes. she was calling the, uh, the officer the shooting black people in the back you know she she said i I called them murderers but she never did mention anything about when she was on the force and that she had reported anybody who was uh talking about doing it or anything like that yet she knew went on and I, i think for some officers too like some of the black ones who really mistreat other black people i think they might actually join with with a similar idea like they want to do good and that's when they realize, yeah, and I think when they realize the situation they're in, it starts off where they they're just doing it to protect themselves, and then eventually I think they just get addicted to the power aspect, and it just becomes a way of life for them. It's almost like how, like if just to juxtapose that to slavery, you look at the um the Kingdom of Dahomey, and they were like renowned slave traders, but when you look at their history, they were actually some of the most valiant anti-slavery people in the beginning. And it just got to a point where the Europeans made an offer to them. They couldn't refuse. They took it. And then eventually they just got addicted to the money that they were making off of slaves. And they became one of the biggest slave traders and most brutal uh, forces on the African continent in regards to kidnapping and enslaving other people. So I think that for some black officers who go rogue, I think it's the same sort of behavior. They come in wanting to do good. They they do negative things in order to get by, and then eventually they might get addicted to that that power and that that ability to abuse someone with abandon, and it just becomes just the way that they handle black people every time they see them. So you're saying like uh, they they're being put in a situation that they can't control, and instead of continuously fighting it, they just uh, they just run with it from that point on that's what you're saying i think some i could be wrong but i think sometimes that's what happens and they just end up becoming what they originally in, intended to to be uh, to fight against they end up becoming it and i just think it's a gradual growth in that direction i don't think that uh these and i'm speaking specifically of black officers i just don't think that they go in there with that mindset unless they're already psychopathic before they become you know officers but I think a lot of them going with the intent of doing good. Some of them continue to try to do good and others become jaded. And eventually they just become everything that they once despised. It's like what Dave said, becoming what you had to endure. And Okay. Let, it, let, 
let's stop right there for a second, man, because I, I know we got a few more clips we want to get through, and sure. uh, I'm sure that some of the uh, callers may have something they want to add. But sure. we'll continue back on after this. But in that particular uh, situation, right, mm-hmm. uh, those of us who understand some of the uh, circumstances that these slave catchers may find themselves in, and after they start doing uh, – certain things that like we uh, <clears throat> excuse me like i was saying they they put it in a particular situation and then instead of fighting the, the urge to uh do something because they feel bad they just embrace it right and continue on now is there some point that since we forgive everybody else i mean as as black people in general right is there some point when we should forgive them for doing that or should we be understanding of uh, whatever type of situation they've been put in? Cause a lot of us done been in similar just without the power. Uh, like how should we look at that particular uh, situation? Cause I know, I know black slave catchers, uh, not that with any of my knowledge have done anything to uh, black people, what have you, but I have heard some of the nasty stories of what they've went through. And then to have, because uh, I know at one point in time, I couldn't stand uh, black slave catchers even more than white slave catchers. So uh, speaking with them, I've heard the uh, the response of how they feel, Come even if they haven't done anything, they, they feel the negativity off of us before anything comes into play, whether they dirty or not. So should we start looking at that? And this is an open question. I, I'm sure you have your own thoughts and just to to the rest of the universe. You know I'm saying, should we feel any kind of uh, empathy, I guess for lack of a better word, for them when we running into them? Because we, we're supposed to be uh, respecting each other, but pr- slave catchers particularly, all of the respect kind of go out the uh, window. At least it has for me in the past. So I'm going to present that question to you before we continue on on the next clips. Okay. I would answer it this way. I think everybody deserves respect until they provide a situation where they lose your respect by something they do. And even in a situation with, with a police officer, you always have to keep in the back of your mind that they're the one that's truly in power there. So even if it's a situation where they are, are rude or disrespectful you still want to be understanding but understanding to the point of making it out of that situation because you don't know who you're dealing with uh i would say for me i naturally don't trust them but i'm not going to automatically show them distrust when i encounter them that's pretty much the way i i deal with it i don't let them i don't show them any adversarial anything when I encounter them. I just I keep it business, and that's just how I deal with them, and I'm respectful, but I keep it business. And when I say that, I just mean it's just like, hey, am I free to go? <laughs> it's like, you know, I just get get through it as quickly as possible. Look, am I free to go? And then I'm on my way. I have no time to dilly-dally or anything like that, and I've told them, I do what I told my son to do. Make sure my hands are visible. Make sure I don't reach for anything. If, if I feel the need to present my identification, if they ask for it, I ask first, is it okay if I go in my right front pocket to, to get my wallet before I actually reach for it? And if I feel uncomfortable, I'll tell them, you get it out of my pocket and just keep my hands in sight. But you go in my pocket because I don't trust you. 
you're not going to make an excuse to just blow my head off because you saw me reach for my wallet that you asked me to take out. I mean, most times I don't show police my ID anyway because I'm not – the only reason they should be asking for ID is if, you, if you've done a crime or they, you know, they suspect that you've done a crime based on whatever circumstances or whatever the case may be. But other than that, I just try to keep it business. And I think you have some officers who, who do negative things, and then once they're out of that situation or they retire or they move on to a different career, they may regret some of the things they did in the ways that they treated people. But you have to remember too, that just the entire concept of the officer was created around slavery. And there's a lot of psychopathic people that tend to become police officers. Right. And, and, and they go there with the intention of being able to kill or severely abuse other people with reckless abandon and use the law to their advantage in order to do so. And a lot of times the recipient of that treatment are innocent black people. So, it's just having a healthy awareness and mm-hmm. the respect level to me just should be to keep you safe in that encounter in that, in that situation. And if they are disrespectful to you, you should still be respectful because if they're already disrespectful to you right. and you go into a back and forth with them, you're just making it escalate. And once they get you in a situation where no one can see you and you're out of the public eye, anything could happen to you. And we yeah, know yeah, the types yeah, of things they do behind closed doors. They will have you begging for your life before you can blink twice. So in order to avoid that, I say just just be as, as, as respectful and as to the point with them as possible and try to survive the situation. That's my, my, my code and the way that I would suggest people act if I had a suggestion to provide. And hopefully that resonates with people and, and, and they they understand what I'm saying. If there's something I'm saying that's misunderstood, please let me know. If I said something that was confusing, please let me know, and I'll clarify it. Well, Can I be- oh, okay, Scotty. brother Scotty, uh, greetings here. I'm I'm finna hand it over to you in just a second. Uh, and I know some there's a few other people. Whether they tell us or they share it amongst their family, uh, the question or what have you. Here's my answer. Very, very quick and to the point. Can you repeat the question first? Just to oh, make sure. Uh, should should we have any empathy and or forgiveness for the uh for the uh black slave catchers that we encounter? But and I was saying because in the past, uh because of the situations they may have been put in to become crooked and, and maybe trying to change or what have you. Uh or or do we uh look at them just as uh should we forgive them? That was the basis of the uh of the question. And you said you would go go ahead with yeah, your answer. My quick my quick answer is the uh I don't necessarily forgive nobody. It's a lot of people that still don't forgive me. Some of them rightfully so. Some of them was made up. But I don't uh I can deal with you if I have to deal with you, especially from a, a civilian slave catcher standpoint, because there's a superpower dynamic. But I look at the black slave catchers like I look at the white slave catchers, they slave catchers, and their job is to put whoever they can in jail. And normally when dealing with us, they put us in jail very roughly or into the grave. So uh, mm. go ahead, Brother Scotty. Greetings. How you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing um, as well as can be expected. You know, it's always somebody out there that's doing worse than me. So that's just how it go. 
Um, so I'm just grateful, you know, for the things I do have and don't worry about so much about the things I don't have. They'll come um, if it's meant to be. Now, in terms of forgiveness, I, I don't know. You know, you had to do something to me for me to forgive you. So I don't quite understand the question. You know, for, are we forgiving them for deciding to become cops? Is that how you? I'm glad you uh, that that does help me be able to clarify. I mean, for just the uh, the crooked cops that run around our neighborhoods, the ones that are uh, that have killed people uh, before slamming little girls, and and I'm talking in general about black cops uh, in particularly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, my earliest experience, probably my first experience with a police officer was the school resource officer when I was in middle school in Detroit. I didn't go to school that day. I don't know why I wasn't at school that day. I wasn't skipping school, um, but I wanted to go play on the basketball course after school was over. But school, it was like five minutes till it was over. And this dude was like, well, you didn't come to school today. You better not come on school. You better not step on. I was already on school grounds. You better not step on that basketball court until the bell rings. And, you know, just being a a, a a butthole. And, I mean, this dude actually put me in handcuffs and made me go into the, and took me into the building and made me sit there for about 20 minutes and then mm-hmm. let me go. You know, that was my first experience with a cop, and it was a black cop. Um man you know it's just uh it's how it's how they treat me you know what i'm saying um you know i'm more thinking along the lines of what ross was talking about you know uh recently bernie sanders was asked about what would you tell your black if you had a black son and i don't understand why we asking white people about imaginary (laughs) black sons (laughs) Yeah. So, but he said he said that. Well, I would I would tell tell them to respect the process. And a lot of people was flipping out, saying, "Oh, he said respect the police officer." And I, and I was like, "Well, that's not what he said. He said respect the process, so you don't get a bullet in the back of your head." That and that's a quote. He said respect the process, so you don't get shot in the back of the head. I think some teenager. Uh, Hispanic teen in California had just been shot in the back of the head, uh, running running from the cops and, and what have you. And so, but, you know, some black people was flipping out about that. And I was like, well, what you tell your child when, when they get pulled? Or you say, make oink, oink noises and, hey, pig, what you stopping me for? God darn it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Is that what you tell your child? So I, I, it wouldn't matter to me if you said respect the cop when because black parents have been saying that. And when they say respect, they don't mean that you respecting somebody you don't even know. You know what I'm saying? They're, what they're saying is speak respectfully, conduct yourself respectfully so that you don't bring the slave catcher down on your head. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, most of the... Uh, um, interactions i had the worst interactions i had with cops was in detroit though black and white but when i moved down here to rural south uh, north carolina which is where i was born at but we moved back down here um i came into contact with a lot of white cops you know 
Um, and a lot of times they cut me breaks. And it's because of the way I spoke to them. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You know, it, it was times that I was doing underage drinking and, and had drove the car and uh, was too drunk to make it home and just pulled over on the side of the road and went to sleep. And then here's this white cop knocking on my window. I just told him the truth. And he said, you did the smart thing. Um, you know, I'm going to let you go now and you just be safe out here. Man, he could have arrested me. You know what I'm saying? But if I'd have been all belligerent, what do you think he'd have did? So oh, yeah. it, to me, it's, it's just conducting yourself. It's not as much, it's not so much respecting them. It's conducting yourself in a respectful manner. Like Ross was saying, this person has all the power in this situation. So why I want to antagonize somebody that has all the power? You know, there's been other times I've been pulled over and this was like, right after I had gotten out the military. And I used to hang my dog tags from my uh, 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 rear view mirror. And I let them cops know, you know, I ain't going to make it like I was getting stopped a lot, but I probably been stopped more than white people been stopped in their lifetime. But, um, you know, I would even throw that card in. Yeah, I just got out the military and, and all this and that, because I know they, you know, most people are favorable towards veterans. Or what. I play every kind of card I can to get out of it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because I don't want that ticket. I don't, I don't you know. So that's the way I look at it, man. But, like, I agree with Jenna, man. I don't care what their skin color is, man. I'm looking at their uniform and what their uniform represents and what their job is in this system. Some of Absolutely. them become cops because they really do want to help people. But also we know a lot of psychopaths also become cops because they have been bullies all their lives, and that's a way for them to get to bully people and get paid for it. So. You know, you just have to do your best to be codified. And when I say codified, conduct yourself in a respectful manner. Recognize that this person has all the power in this situation. You can lose your life. You can lose some money. You can lose your freedom. So act like, act like those things are important for you not to lose and, and you know, just conduct yourself in, in, in a manner to where, you know, they're likely not, not to um, mistreat you. You know, now, um, even one time when I was in the military, it didn't matter to this white cop. I was in Arizona, um, Sierra Vista, Arizona, a little town outside of uh, Fort Huachuca. And I was driving my car and it was dust. It wasn't fully dark yet. It was getting dark. The sun was setting, but you can still see. And I had pop-up headlights. And one of my headlights, I had a Celica GT would get in the habit of getting stuck and not coming up. And so this cop going to pull me over because I had one one of the lights was on and he going to pull me over because of my lights, right? So I was like, okay, will you allow me to get out the car and rectify that? He was like, okay. So then I just, all I had to do was hit it with my fist, you know, bump it and then the light would come up because it was just simply getting stuck. Um, and so then I was like, okay, am I free to go? And he was like, you look like you might be a drug dealer. This is what this white cop said to me. I was like, what? How does a drug dealer look? I'm in the military. Don't you see the military stickers on my car? Can't you tell by my haircut? I'm in the military. He was like, that don't matter. And I suspect he's right. <laughs> because it is plenty of dudes in the military that deal drugs and what have you. But 
I but I took it as and I know he meant it as racism because I was black. Not because I was in the military, because I was black. And so he said, You look like you might be a drug dealer. Can I search your car? I was like, after I just told y'all what I said to him. Then I thought, I said, you know what, sir? This sounds like a question to me. So my question, my answer is no. And he got in his car and drove off and left me alone. Now, if I had got belligerent or, or something like that, then I would have opened myself up to resisting arrest or or disturbing a peace. You know how they make up stuff. So, you know, it's not so much that, that we being punks or anything. We just recognizing the reality of the situation that we live in and we want to make it home safe. You said it. And it's funny because I actually said this on a, a, a tribute, a television, local television show that was a tribute to Dr. Ben. I said this, I said, black folks in America have to understand that we are intergenerational prisoners of war. And as a result, we have to act like prisoners of war when we come in contact with people in authority, specifically law enforcement. I said, if we understood that, then a lot of the negative reactions we have that end up escalating situations into potentially deadly ones would not be the case because the idea is to be as, 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 peaceful and respectful as possible to avoid any escalation that you can. Once they have you, they have you. But how they treat you is usually based on how you interact with them. So if you start to get belligerent, you start to raise your voice, you start to curse them out, you call them out of their name, they're going to make you pay. I remember I saw a video of a young man. He was talking real crazy to the police outside of the precinct and, and just cursing them out, calling them all kinds of names and just going in. And when they got him in prison, they broke his arm and they beat him into, within inches of his life. They choked him. They punched him in his face while they were choking him after they broke his hand. And he literally thought he was dying. And he started begging them. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I was like, that is terrifying. And I understood his anger, but. And that, and they, they actually had him strapped into a chair. So they had him restrained in the chair and everything. And they broke his arm while he was restrained in that chair. And then they beat the living, just they beat the, the, the they beat him senseless. And he was begging for his life at that point. So all of the stuff he was doing out before they got him into the precinct, that was over. He understood at that point. He was completely restrained. He could not defend himself. He could not protect himself. He just had to take everything they were given to him, and they made sure that he understood who was really in charge. And that's what you want to avoid by just being respectful. You are captured. You're going into slavery. Slavery is where you get treated the worst, and anything can happen to you. They had the guy that they, they pretty much cooked him to death in the shower with the hot water, his skin pretty much black man, they, they just cooked him in the shower. And his family had to find out about it. You had other people, they starved to death. Other people, they run up in your cell at random and just beat the living sense out of you all hours of the night. They change shifts and another shift will run up in there with the right hand and just beat you until you're unconscious. Larry Davis, Davis went through that regularly. You want to avoid those sorts of things by just doing, it's not about, you know, kissing their behinds. You are in prison. You are a prisoner of war. And prisoners of war are treated with extreme prejudice. And black people get treated with the most extreme prejudice of any other group. So you want to avoid that and, and deal with the situation legally. And especially when you're not in the situation where they directly have access to you to do anything they want to you. I just think that's common sense. And I just think that's the safest way to do things when we know 
that it takes nothing for them to kill us, and they have the most ingenious ways of killing us, and we've seen it a million times over. So the best thing to do is to avoid it, and the main thing is teaching your children that. A lot of how I learned to interact with police did not come from my parents. It came from me just actually thinking of my own code. And it was because I was in the streets all the time. So I had certain sorts of encounters with them that just made me develop a code that was conducive to my survival in those situations. And I, when I was younger, I was, I was viscerally opposed to police. And I was the complete opposite of everything I'm saying today. My wife almost saw me Rodney King when we first started dating each other. I think I might have died that night. And it was only because she was with me that I had to, I was, I was ready to actually get physical with them. And it was because she was with me, I had the common sense to say, I'm, I'm out with my woman. Let me get the heck up out of this part before I end up a statistic. But I was angry enough to actually, and I, I was told the cop and he got terrified. He was mad, but he got terrified and got on his phone, his, um, his CB, and about six moped <laughs> police rolled up on us. And if I didn't get out of that part, it would have been my behind. So my wife could actually attest to, to that. She was there for that one before we, act, when we were first dating each other. So I was the complete opposite. I was angry. I didn't really care about anything, highly aggressive. And you could probably say um, probably slightly suicidal too. So I know, I know when people come from that angle, I understand what it is and where it comes from because I was that person. I'm just older and a lot wiser. And I made sure that I, from the time my son could understand what I was saying, and we got into any conversation about encounters with law enforcement, I gave him strict codes on how to behave. Thankfully, he's never had to really deal with that. Um, I think he may have had one, maybe two encounters that were not negative like that, but he understands what to do if that is the case. And we talk about that regularly, even though he's a young adult at this point. So I just think what Scotty said is great. What Jenna said is great. And I just think that we just have to do what works for us and make sure that what works for you is conducive to your survival. If it is not conducive to your survival, throw it into the trash can of your codification. If it's something that works, you cling to it, you, you refine it, and you, you get it to optimum working condition. And like Neely Fuller said, you do it the same way every time. When you talk to the police, have your stick. If they say, can I search your car, officer, I do not consent to any searches of my property or my person without a warrant. I understand that you're trying to do your job, but I do not consent to a search of any kind. That way, if they search you, that'll be considered an illegal search, especially if they don't have probable cause. And then on top of that, um, it will be considered an illegal search because you did not consent to that search. So as long as you make that clear, it can save you because any evidence that they might find will be thrown out of court. But if you tell them, go ahead and search, you gave them permission and they plant something in the car. That's one of the reasons you don't let them search because they can plant things. They'll tell you they're looking for something, but they got a packet of something that they put under your seat and then you're going to jail because you trusted them. Always keep in the back of your mind, no matter how pleasant the officer is, no matter how nice they are to you, no matter how helpful they may be, it is their job to enslave you and anybody that they come into contact with. They're not coming into contact with you to help unless it's one of those emergency situations where it's, it's a life or death emergency, like a fire in a building or something like that. Okay. But outside of that context, any contact with them is to put you in jail, which is to enslave you. And as long as you keep that in the back of your mind, you should already have everything within your, within your grasp that you need to say 
in order to avoid being searched and to avoid being taken away in handcuffs by any means necessary in a legal fashion using your common sense, your brain, and your mouth. <laughs> do your best to do that, that, do it that way. And more than likely, like, like Scotty said, most officers, if you treat them with respect and you talk to them with, with, with respect, usually they'll, they'll, they'll usually be cool unless the person is just a real hateful psychopathic racist. There's nothing you can do or say that's going to stop them from wanting to mistreat you. And in that sense, you, in that situation, you still do the same thing because you want to be blameless in the situation. So no matter what happens to you, once you survive that situation and you get to deal with it legally, even if it goes to a jury trial, you will be blameless in the eyes of the jury. You want to give them no fuel that comes from you to use against you when you get them when you get to court with that situ or that officer or officers in that situation. May I be may I be heard? Yes, sir. Peace, peace. Greetings, greetings, greetings man. Good good to hear y'all. Um greetings, brother Scott. Greetings, Jenna. Greetings, Ross. Good good to hear y'all, brothers, man. It's been a minute. Um I got I got <laughs> appreciate that man appreciate it. Uh Earth Day just passed uh, last week. Yes, I sir. um I got to say it's it's really it's really good to um have the discussion in regards to um and you were speaking earlier about differences in the south and the north and um a lot of people coming from the south coming up to the north and then same the same black people that came up to the north earlier despising those that came up from the south as well. And um, I, I got to tell you, one of the things that I noticed, because I have a, a lot of family in Maryland, uh, Florida, and Atlanta, mm -hmm. the, the generation that's my generation, not the older ones, but the generation that's my generation has been kind of caught up in a, a mentality that, and this, is, this comes from even, even every area region in America, where if you come from a specific area, you get typecasted in a way. You know, and um, the the when I went down south, my my brother's manager was like, "Oh well, it's good to see you. You came down to visit your country bumpkin brother," and I'm like, "Country bumpkin? My brother makes more money than me. He got a house and he drives an Audi. I'm not doing that in New York City. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know about country bumpkin, but I, I don't like that that mentality that we have." with each other. I think it's divisive when we, we undermine each other just because of the regions that we're located and where we're at. And I've seen it with um I've seen it even with people from the West Coast where they where I've had conversations with people that are from Cali or other areas and their mentality is like they view people from New York City as know it alls. And I I understand the dynamic. I understand the stereotype that's going out. But I feel like we need to make a real concerted effort to not typecast each other because we get typecasted by white people every day. And the, that diversity that we have coming from the South, coming from the North, East, West, you name it, I think it's unparalleled because we all have different experiences and we can all help each other out in different ways, you know, because mm -hmm. Scotty, Scotty has land. You know what I'm saying? Scotty has mm -hmm. land. I personally would want land, my, a, a piece of land of my own one day. Mm -hmm. But I know I need to know how to take care of that land. I need to know how to even acquire it, the first of all. He can help me with that, you know, when I'm ready to make that move. And this is the understanding that I don't think we, we, we get further enough in conversations with people from other regions to really understand and know. Um, 
So that was a, that was a big thing because I've again I've I've seen it a lot even within my family. Um, the cop situation, Jenna, I gotta say, um, black cops have actually been more understanding towards me here in the city. Um, and I say that just based off of my experiences. I'm I'm, I'm just going on that. Uh, black cops, I, I, when I was younger and, and hopping turnstiles and trying to do a lot of legal illegal things and you know things of that nature, cops would just the black cops would tell me they go, look man, I don't want to do anything with you. You stay right here and mind your business, or you could leave and come back later on and do what you need to do. But you you, you can't. You know, you can't do it when I'm right here because you're making me look bad. I've had cops literally tell me that on more than one occasion. Mm. And I had I had no nothing else to do as a as a young knucklehead but to respect that. Because he didn't ha he and she, by the way, um to, to uh, one sister and another brother, they didn't have to do that. They could have got they could have got rough with me, threw me up against the wall and did all types of things. You know, but those, those, my situation and my experiences with black cops has been so far um, actually pretty positive, I, I have to admit. And I know they're slave catchers. I know what they do. I understand what they do. But um, so far, so good. Uh, white cops, I mean, well, hey, <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. You know, um, after, I don't know if you guys remember, the, the gentleman that was shot right before his uh, wedding, Sean Bell. Yes. He, he, the same week that that occurred, I got pulled over, and as I got pulled over, it was, and obviously it was for no reason. There was nothing, he, no reason, just for three black people in the car, and we just came from running around Prospect Park, which is one of the parks here in Brooklyn, and as I pulled over, I said, yeah, man, he's just going to let us go, and then my boy took a look around. He said, Jay, he got his gun drawn now. I said, man, he ain't got his gun drawn. I said, he said, Jay, he's got his gun drawn now. He's not even trying to talk to us yet. Put your hands on the steering wheel. And I'm like, you know, I'm brushing my my, my, my boy off. I'm like, nah, it's, it's not that serious. And then I looked at my side mirror, and I could see him walking towards the car, and he already had his gun drawn. And immediately I put my hands on the steering wheel. You know, but this, that that is the type of terrorism that we deal with when it comes to them. And I think everybody pretty much agrees with the same and saying the same thing, which is respect the process, try your best. You don't have to belittle yourself. You just treat them in a respectful manner. Make sure you maintain your head, keep your cool because they will say and do things to possibly aggravate you. But I think it's, it, it, at the end of the day, you hold a lot more power in the situation than you, you, you realize as far the as power is in people. silence. Yep. The power yeah. is in silence. Learn the right yeah. of saying nothing, because anything mm -hmm. you say will be used. Even when you have a lawyer, <laughs> let let them do the, the, the. I mean, even when the lawyer's present, let the lawyer do all the talking for you. Have nothing right. to say. Don't don't say a word, and you will you will make your way up out of there because they can't <laughs> hold anything against you that where you've incriminated yourself if you said nothing. But if you say anything, mm -hmm. they can twist and turn it any way they want. And you will be sitting in there with the roaches and the rats and whoever else they bring from the street with you, and it's not going to be present. <laughs> Silence is golden in that situation. Say, I have nothing to say until my lawyer arrives, and anything I do have to say will be said to and, to and through my lawyer. After that, shut it down. <laughs> by by the way, this, is, this, is, 
Indeed. This is something that's off the topic a little bit, but I don't know if you guys saw this, but did you see the the, the tweet that Donald Trump sent to Kamala Harris? I don't know if you guys no. saw this. This is this just happened. No. He um I guess they were going back and forth and saying something and like she said, he said, too bad, we will miss you, Kamala. Don't worry, Mr. President, I will see you in trial. And I'm not sure what the, she's trying to say. Like, I'm not sure what he's trying to say. He sounds like he's threatening her. And I'm, you know, I, I don't know. You guys check it out when you get a chance. I, I don't, I'm not in front of my laptop. I only got my phone in my hand. But um, yeah, kind of she, ended, she ended her uh, presidential campaign, which I'm not sad about, but she right. ended her presidential campaign, and that's what he was referring to, and she was referring to a possible impeachment trial in the Senate. In the Senate. Mm. That's what that was. All right, all right. And, oh, I, I wanted to, and thanks for bringing that up, too. I'm going to look into that, but, yeah, thank you, Scotty, for that um, input as well, because that kind of clarified because I didn't see it before. But I did want to speak to what you were saying about the whole region and black people being uh, regionally tribal. It's interesting because Jen and I have had numerous conversations about that specific thing, because being a New Yorker, that is something that, and, and I, this is my, what I've seen just with knowing history and just seeing the development of black people in the North after the great migration. I believe a lot of those ideas that we carry about other parts of the country, we adopt them from white people. And the reason why I say that is because when you, New York specifically, Northern white people have a certain view of Southern people in general. And it's usually negative that they're backwards. The nickname for them in New York is Bammers. Um, they're slow. They have a funny way of speaking. We don't understand what some of them are saying. They have weird accents. Like th these are things I grew up hearing. And a lot of that came from white folks because the white folks in the North thought they spoke better, they wore better clothes, they were more civilized than Southern white people. And a lot of black people who moved to the North, I believe, adopted those same mannerisms towards Southern black people. I didn't personally feel that way. And Jen and I have talked about that numerous times, but I could see where that that uh, that rift is coming from. And it kind of reminds me of the same thing in the Caribbean. When you hear about different islands that don't like each other, the Jamaicans hate the Trinidadians, everybody hates the Haitians, um, uh, Dominicans hate Puerto Ricans, and you could just name them ad infinitum. But a lot of people, especially in the States, don't know that the slave masters used to have competitions between the islands. Who could who could bail the most uh, sugar cane? Who could process the most this? Who could process the most that? And there wasn't really any reward to be gained. It was pretty much just working harder for your master so that they could actually lay, lay claim to the fact that they island beat your island. And a lot of that developed into this animosity between different islands, Trinidad versus St. Vincent, all of that sort of stuff came from us adopting the mannerisms, thoughts, and ideas that slave masters put in our minds. I believe just based on the way that I had seen it done and talked about in New York as far as the way we felt about Southerners, and then Jenna would kind of talk to me about some of the ways that Southerners viewed Northerners, and we were able to compare those notes on quite a few occasions, and we still have those conversations every now and then, 
I believe that a lot of those mannerisms are adopted from white people who had these regional issues, and then we adopted it and started viewing each other in the same lens. So pretty much it's just that assimilation of that white mindset in regards to the class, the classism thing, the classist thing. The white whites in the North thought they were better and more sophisticated than the whites in the South. And the whites in the South thought the whites in the North were uppity and snooty. And, and, and it's just, a, a I, that's what I, I don't know if anybody else understands that correlation or, is, or, um, um, or, agrees with that. If you have something else to co contribute to that, please do. I got two cents on it. Okay, what's up, Brother Hayes? Peace. Uh, let's see. Should we forgive black uh, cops? Let me, let me tell you guys a story. This happened, this one goes out to my friend Clifton Pete Lee. He died by the hands of Washtenaw Sheriff's Department by smothering of a 300-pound black coon cop. And I'm sorry for using coon, but that's what we call him here in town. This cop didn't do not one day in jail. Now, this happened, if you want to reference it, it happened, and I can tell you the time if you want, but the day was June 1st, 2006. His nephew was running from the police ran to Bruce's and, and Pete's house, hopped the fence. The police surrounded the house. Now, mind you, Clifton, his two daughters, his three daughters were in the house. These were young girls. The brothers came out to see what was going on. These police beat these two. Now, I'm across the street in a blacked-out garage with a friend of mine. When they started beating these two up, people started coming out on the porch. This police department went into Gestapo mode and started making people go into their house so they didn't see. Okay. Now, this is at the time I told my boy, black out the garage, black out the garage, turn out the light so they couldn't see. Didn't even see us over there. Now, this went on. You can, you can find the video. This is one of the reasons why my house was raided, because under the uh, Freedom of Information Act, I wrote and got both DVDs of the dash cam of my friend being smothered. They raided my house four times. Once with the help of my uncle. Okay. Now, I had already been a felon. Thanks to my uncle in 2000 where my daughter was taken away from me. I haven't been the same since. By a black cop that lied and said I pointed a, a sawed-off shotgun. None of my guns were sawed off. I had a legal rifle collection. I didn't even have handguns. But because my grandfather left me all of his guns, my uncle took very, very sour to that. And with him and his police friend, corrupt black police friends they ruined me forgiveness hell no you know what there's a cop that just got popped in detroit a couple days ago and guess what he's still dead and i'm laughing now yes we have to play our cards right when we're pulled over forgiveness not a chance 
not a chance. Now, if you saw what I saw, it was barbaric. Barbaric. This was done in front of his three young girls. Now, mind you, Ypsilanti tore the family off $4.4 million, yeah. And his brother was healed up, yeah. But Cliff is still gone. And you know what? Those are one of the nightmares that I still be having besides the nightmares that I had in the prison from seeing people that weren't able to pay up a $7 Roman numeral, uh, Roman uh, noodle debt get stabbed for nothing, man. So no, they they send us to these grind houses because I was sent to prison doing the one to four and did three years for having a broken stun gun because my uncle knew it was in the house. They, the easiest way to get over on a people is you disarm them so they cannot protect themselves. I read this on one of their forms that this idiot cop dropped his notebook in my house and had his own login and password in it. And I read everything about these people, how they think about us, what they plan about us. When they raided my house and saw all of my guns, you took my guns, yes, but you did not take my gunsmithing skills. They know what I am. They know what I can do. They know what I'm capable of. And you know what? When a white guy says, I'm glad they don't have cloning because if they could clone a million of you, we'd be in trouble. And I don't even have military training, but I have a lot of ex-military friends that taught me a lot of stuff. I'm not a forgiver. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just a product of my racist environment here in the ununited states of double standard BS. And that's all I have to say. You can mute me now because I'm going back to this blunt. Nene wants me. What you want, babe? I didn't say nothing harsh. It's all good, man. Um, Some of us just have some real intense experiences with law enforcement that just really makes it for just a visceral reaction to them and the history of the police and the way that they've treated us historically and contemporaneously really makes for these sorts of situations and feelings and relationships in regards to how we do not relate to them at all. And sadly, sometimes the, for some people, the police that treat you the worst look like you. Those who don't have that experience or haven't had that experience, that's actually really good. I haven't had many of them, but I've had a couple with black officers. But the overwhelming majority of my negative experiences have been with white police officers and NYPD officers. I've had some with New Jersey, too, but it was never aggressive. It was always verbal with them. Whereas with New York, it was aggressive and verbal, but it was physically aggressive. That's where I've had the most intense potentially uh, deadly encounters with law enforcement with New York City. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the the deal is this. We are in a situation where we're prisoners of war. 
And when you look at movies like uh, Hamburger Hill and Platoon and Good Morning Vietnam, that's us. And America's Vietnam. Like, we are prisoners. Like, just like the Vietnamese, they tried to make them prisoners in their own country. They're making black people prisoners in America. And the only people who don't really understand our status as prisoners of war, as, as, as a captured people, is a lot of us. And that's the main reason we're treated like we are. It's racism, white supremacy, and that they, they were captured. Like Nearly Fool said, name, rank, serial number. That's it. That's what you give them. And other than that, shut your trap. Don't have anything to say until your, your, your represent, legal representation shows up. Man. Uh, that was... That was very important. I didn't realize how what well, I realized how important the question was, but you know, we all have our own experience and as a whole when we come into contact with these slave catchers, like I said, look at them like slave catchers. It really don't matter. Uh con- yep. we was on uh we were still discussing the uh the police the discussion on race, that's what it was. And the black uh, police officer, what we have seen so many times before, she was stopped and she was letting them know, hey, my whole family cops, my dad's cops, none of that mattered for her. Now, we know, like Brother Hayes said, the double standard for the other side, but always be aware that we do not live by the same rules. Uh, Martin Luther King called it the two Americas. It's rough. Now, to move on away from that, though, our next topic, let me see, make sure I'm in the right spot. Parenting technology, importance and environment. The this way he was talking about it in the, uh, the spirit of addiction. Mm. I personally believe that we done got into a, uh, a disparity addiction. We addicted to uh, always hanging on to what happened worse to us, mm-hmm. especially when it's an an excuse for us moving forward. What what you think about that, Ross? Uh, I would say this. I remember I've talked about this before. We have. I believe a lot of black folks have made a religion out of our suffering, and it's to the point where even that is something that is divisive amongst black people. Who suffered the worst? Who was mistreated the worst? How much other people don't understand what other groups of black people have been through? And that becomes the rallying cry for other forms of anti-blackness. And rather than looking at, and I think it's important to know what happened to different groups in different countries, especially if you are moving into a country to live amongst other black people, I think it's very important that the people moving into that country get an understanding for what they're walking into. It's just like when, and I've said this before, when you go to visit someone at their house, they lay down the ground rules. 
the way things are done in that house, what's allowed, what's not allowed. You might might even get more background into why certain things are allowed and not allowed due to understanding the history of the family. Some families do impart that information. Others will just give you the rules. So, <laughs> but I believe that when people come from other countries to America, the people whose country it is need to teach those people. So those black people who live here need to teach those people who are coming in because they're not going to know how to access the proper resources. They don't even know what they're looking for. And if you can foster an understanding so that they understand what they are moving into, then you can actually work with them and coalesce around solving problems for both groups. Because again, once those black people move here from other countries, they're treated just like black Americans. It's how they're treated. They don't, the, the, the police don't care about accents. They don't care about what country you come from. They don't care what religion you practice. They see a black person and they treat all black people the same. So I believe that we complain about superficial things that really could be solved with a little bit of conversation and education. And I believe that even when Americans move to other countries, those black people in those other countries need to school those Americans on what they're moving into. Oh, you trying to move to this Caribbean island? Well, let me just break down, you know, how things are done here. You know, be careful of getting in, in, into any problems with law enforcement. If you're caught smoking weed, you're going to go to jail and they'll probably beat you. Like, whatever you need to know to avoid problems, it's the people who live there, who, whose country it is before you arrive. They should be schooling you on everything you need to know to have the, the most positive experience possible and to stay away from getting into any sort of illegal trouble. Because you don't know the rules of where you're going. There's a lot of things that America allows that is not allowed in other places that black people don't know about. And some of them end up doing major prison terms or end up on death row in other countries. They think I could sneak a nickel bag of weed into Iran and then you end up literally on death row and they will hang you. <laughs> they will beat you mercilessly. They'll do things to you that you will not experience in America. So you have to know the rules of where you're going. And I just think that we've made a religion out of our suffering. And it becomes a who a pity party of who's who's been mistreated the worst, how the minds of different people are conducive to white supremacy, but these minds are that way because the propaganda is global. So when black Americans complain about how foreign blacks see them, it's the American government that's to blame who's putting out all of the negative news clips. It's the black rappers who are running around saying nigga every five seconds on a record and they're traveling around the globe giving giving the nigga rap to everybody. And then you wonder why people move from Asia or move from India or move from, from Pakistan or from Arabia and they're calling you a nigga too. It's because they seen 50 Cent. He came to their country and sold out the crowd and had them rocking to nigga for five hours. So we 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 need to really take holistic looks at how we deal with things and how we contribute to the way that we're we're viewed by other people, by some of the so-called entertainers that, that become well-known. We have to understand governmental propaganda, and all of this is geared towards fracturing relationships between Black people in America and any other Black group outside of America. And I keep telling Black people, how did white people dominate the planet? A pan-European agenda for global dominance. 
where even though they hated each other, they were killing each other mercilessly, they they were reducing their numbers to almost extinction-level events just by their sheer hatred and killing of each other, white people were able to put that stuff aside long enough to dominate everybody else. So the reason that they are trying to fracture relationships between all black groups is to prevent black unity, which will reverse the role of black people in the global society, in the global picture. So any sort of coming together of black people is a no-no. And until we understand that everything that they don't want us to do is what we should be clinging on to like our life depended on it, we're going to continue to suffer. So should we be aware of what other, each other has suffered? Yes. But it's not because it's not for show-offism. It's not for abuse show-offism. I've been abused worse than you. Please feel sorry for me or treat me in a certain way because this happened. No, it's about, well, what do we do to stop that abuse? What can I do to, to, to help uh, not be more of a burden upon the situation that I'm walking into, but be a help rather than a hindrance? And that would take coming out of your bag and just saying, hey, you know, I want to just welcome you to the neighborhood and just kind of build with you and help you understand some of the things that you might see and encounter and maybe the ways that you might might be misinformed about our people here. Because the same misinformation that foreigners get when they come here, black Americans get about the same farmers. And it's the same sort of the same stuff they did to northern blacks, like we talked about earlier, talking about the new arrival southern blacks and for white people feeling about the southern blacks first moving up in the great migration. That's what they're doing to farmers. They're coming here to take your jobs. And a lot of black Americans fall for that. But when you look at a lot of the jobs immigrants take, those are the jobs that even black Americans won't do. They'll take the jobs that nobody wants. And I remember I saw a 60 Minutes episode. This was years ago. It had to be more than 10, 10, maybe 15 years ago. And there was a town in New Mexico, and they said that over 95% of the entire city, as far as the people who did the cleaning, the people who ran the restaurants, the people who did the landscaping, the people who did all the jobs that nobody else wanted, if those Mexicans did not, that 95% of those jobs were done by Mexicans. So if they were kicked out or deported, the entire city was shut down. But yet these people are taking your jobs, and nobody else wanted those jobs. And even the white people said it. Black people don't want those jobs, and even white people wasn't doing those jobs. But the Mexicans happily came in to do it, and they were willing to do it for less pay than any of those groups. So we really have to think about those things. And, and, and to me, to, 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 to have this whole argument about who suffered worse, well, what about the Mexicans that are coming across the border illegally? Who's creating and facilitating the unrest in Mexico to cause them to run over here? It's the United States. There was a documentary of a guy. He was in Texas. He worked for the CIA. He was supposed to be tracking how the illegal guns were getting into Mexico that the cartel was using to massacre 50 people at a time and dump them in mass graves, whole families, like entire generations of families being wiped out, and they'll just bury them. They'll hang them from bridges, and they'll be left to rot for, for weeks on end. They were like, how are these guns getting into the country? And what they found was that different police departments were actually reselling the guns to the people in the cartel. So they were finding the same 
when they would um, when they would test the bullet the bullet casings and the bullet the bullet fragments to see that the, every barrel of a gun when you shoot it, there's marks that are placed on the bullet so that they can identify what gun it was shot from. And they were finding that the same guns were being reused in multiple crimes because they were being sold across the border by CIA agents. And he said when he started to get deeper into the conspiracy, he got a cease and desist from the highest levels of the CIA and the upper government. So they knew what was going on. And he was upset because he's like, I spent like five, six years investigating this. And once we finally figured it out, we realized it was our own people doing it. So how can black people be mad at these people in Honduras or um, or even the Africans that now are, are, are rotting on the, on the border of Mexico right now or any of these people when the unrest that's causing them to come is caused by America? And not only that, some of the people complicit in the unrest in these countries are black people in the military. Not just the white ones, not just the Asian ones, not just the Latino ones, but you got a lot of black folks in the military that are proud to fight in the American wars. We fought in every war. Well, was America on the right side of every war it fought? The overwhelming majority of wars America fought, they were on the wrong side of. So for black people to be in every war, they're contributing to the propagation of white supremacy and the destruction of other non-white people around the world. But yet, you want the problem to stay off your doorstep but you participate in creating the problems that got them at your doorstep in the first place. It's idiosyncratic logic. And it's just being honest. It's not about a blame game. It's not because we've all done things to each other over the, the years. We all know that, but we have to really start looking at things in a sensible manner and start coming up with comprehensive ways where we can work with each other and, and help each other to understand what we can do to actually coalesce around solving problems rather than arguing about who's creating problems. Because if that's the case, we could argue ad infinitum about who's creating problems. And we can throw all the different blames around to who's to get blamed for this, that, and the third, and follow the actual history. But the truth is, that's the nature of human relationships. Human beings don't do things correctly all the time. We want people to, but that comes with having a conversation and being honest with each other and not disrespectful, but just honest, open, and, and, and say, hey, I'm willing to move forward so that we can come together to start fixing these issues rather than arguing about who created them and, and how horrible things are because of the participation of some of these groups. And the funny part is when we look at it, black immigrants are the smallest group of people that ever get allowed in the country and they're the first people to get kicked out. Why is it that the only group of people that complain about immigrants who look like them are black people in America and when we're talking in that context? You don't hear white Americans talking about them Europeans coming here taking our jobs. You don't hear Latinos, Latino Americans saying, all them people crossing the border and they taking our jobs. You don't hear the East Indians saying, them Indians are coming here taking our jobs. You don't hear that. It's only black Americans that say that about their own people. And when you look at it, any benefits that Caribbean people get or other black people who come here, it's benefits given to them by the people in charge. Not black Americans, but the white folks are giving this stuff away. But you're blaming the people who look like you for what white folks are giving them. Just like when you blame black people for taking your jobs, it's jobs that black people don't own. It's white people who own those jobs or other ethnic groups that own those jobs, and they choose to hire who they want. It's just a real sensible approach that can help us actually 
get past the nonsense and start doing things of substance so that we can actually collectively work towards something of substance in solving problems. We don't have to like each other, but we can come together to solve our problems. And after that, you can go do what you do. I do what I do. And if we never come together again until another problem arises that, that arises that we need to deal with, then so be it. But for us to continue to argue and all of that is just playing into the hands of white folks. And again, until we are able to unify globally around solving our problem, we don't really need anybody else. Black people can completely trade amongst ourselves. We can do we can do so much globally to keep the global black dollar amongst global black people to to the exclusion of everyone else. It is sickening, and that that's slowly starting to happen with all the stuff that's taking place on the continent and um, some of the migrations that are taking place from the diaspora back to the continent and the connections being made between diaspora and the continent. So this stuff is slowly happening, but when that really really gets to a place of fruition, we can literally like blow up our own economy by exclusively trading with each other and each other exclusively if we chose to do that. Man, it's hold up. What's up? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Okay. Cause my screen done changed over here. On... Oh, it did? But anyhow, um, it's so many things that we can do, but yes, we have a, uh, it seems sometimes we have a vested interest in, like you say, uh, comparing whose troubles are the worst. But we'll have to get into that next weekend. It'll have to be a continuation because we are down to that moment to where it's time uh, for yeah. get it down for the night. So for all of the callers that, that are still on the line, if you have any last uh last words you know now is the time for you to share those with us uh before rise hit us with the prayer yeah i just wanted to make a quick comment i had just last week was talking to my older daughter about these um immigrants coming from south and central america mm-hmm. and i told i asked my daughter i said uh you know we were just having a conversation i don't even know why we was even talking about that we was riding in the car and then I asked her, I was like, you know, we got it bad here, you know, in terms of economics and what have you. We are on the bottom. Only Native Americans are in a worse situation than black folks. And I'm talking about Native Americans on the plant, on the reservations, reservations yeah. and, and what have you. But, but I said now, you would really, something really has to be wrong for you to pick up and leave your home, risk your life to cross a desert because there's a lot of people dying out there in that desert. And and to go to a place you don't speak the language, you don't know nobody, something seriously bad has to be going on. And Ross, it wasn't just the CIA and it wasn't a secret program, but both Bush and Obama had a program through the ATF, that's Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, where they were allowing thousands of those uh, uh, firearms to walk across that border, talking about, well, when somebody get killed, we're going to be able to trace it back to what cartel did, which sounded totally ludicrous. How are you going to take out the top people just because one of their foot soldiers killed somebody with a weapon? And I don't know if y'all remember this, but one of them Border Patrol agents got killed with one of them weapons. 
and that's what blew the lid off of it, man. And so I have never, you know, I I, I um have never heard of black folks being so anti-immigrant until this group called ADOS. And that's just that's just the simple fact of it. I'm I don't know everything. I'm 53 years old, but and I haven't always paid attention to politics or what have you, but I've never heard of black people complaining about these sort of things and not being empathetic to the plight of oppressed people who are oppressed because of what the U.S. government is doing in their country to steal the resources. I just never really heard black people talk like that. That's not the tradition we come from, you know? That's that's not what Malcolm X talked about. That's not what the Black Panthers talked about. That's not even what more more uh um I guess you would say, well, he wasn't accepted at the time. He was radical for his time. But even Martin Luther King, you know? Yes. So I think that's a recent phenomenon, um It is. Rob, it is anti immigrant. You know what I'm saying? And and, and, and like you said. If it was your job, then it wouldn't be given away. It must not be Absolutely. your job. Did you create the job? Did right. you create the business that created the job? Then how in the heck then is somebody giving something that was yours away to somebody else? And then to another point, avocados, they were, I was reading this article where they were talking about avocados, which are mostly grown in California, will be going up because of Trump rounding up all of these undocumented migrant workers and and nobody else wants those jobs. Now this one dude was saying he was getting paid $15 an hour, but tell me, do you wanna go pick avocados where you got a quota of picking two tons a day for, for $15 an hour? I don't, I don't want that job. My, I, you know, I ain't picking nothing, cotton, Okay. <laughs> I mean, if I ain't picking it from my own garden, I definitely ain't wanting to, because that's backbreaking work, man. That's Absolutely. All I well, I wanted to speak on what you just actually brought up in regards to the the, the anti-immigrant stance at ADOS, because it ties right back into a discussion that um Hayes, Jen, and I were having before we went on the air live. Yvette Carnell is a board member of Kiefer which is a white supremacist anti-immigrant group that is in full support of voting in Donald Trump. And she makes no bones about it. She's actually tried to um, downplay what the group is about, but you can go to their website and see it. They're an anti-immigrant white supremacist group that is extremely pro-Trump and are pushing for him to win in 2020. So that is exactly where the anti-immigrant stuff came from. It was with ADOS. And that's what I mean when I say a lot of people who are or, or choose to self-identify as ADOS and who who get upset when uh, immigrants or other black people, other black Americans who just actually know this history start speaking about ADOS negatively. It's not necessarily about the individuals in ADOS. It's about the fact that ADOS is is pretty much aligned with a white supremacist group that is anti-immigrant. And again, I keep telling black people the treatment of black immigrants is directly tied to the enslavement and the abuse of black Americans. And no, none of the, the, the two 
main political parties, the only two authentic political parties where any presidents have been voted from, Democrats or Republicans, neither of them are going to support or align themselves with a group like ADOS where one of its leaders is directly in bed with a white supremacist think tank organization that is anti-immigrant and pro-Trump. They're just not going to do it. That's why ADOS has had such a problem getting any sort of political affiliation. No political group is going to affiliate themselves with ADOS for that reason. So they literally shot themselves in the foot by Yvette Cornell doing things the way she's doing it. But you're absolutely right. It's a recent phenomenon. Go ahead. I'm sorry. She's highly disrespectful. She's lost my respect when she disrespected Dr. Claude Anderson. Uh, She shot herself in the foot then. And um, the, the, the recent things, if that's our leader... I'm not going. I'll sit on my hands. I can trace all my lineage back to down south in Alley, Georgia, and Bessemer, Alabama. So they can kiss my rear on that. I'm Ados. I'll take your I'll take your hashtag. It's mine. Now, how about that? They don't even have it registered. They didn't, they're not going about it right. You know what I'm saying? She's talking too much, and it's not about her sexual orientation. I really don't care about that, but that right. does hamper that does hamper some things, and that opens her up to more criticism. Okay, yeah, now it would help if, if if she was if she was really what the creator made her. But I'm sorry, I, I've always thought, and I will continue to think that choice of life is a choice. Unless you're dropped on your head when you're an infant, maybe that can happen and you like different things. But she is a problem. She is the problem. And I'm sorry, but Tone is he's, he's, is going down. It's, it's like it's, I'm looking at the Titanic on land. That's what it's looking like right now. It's it just interesting. I just think that it's, it's them trying to really do the Encobra thing in a way that they think is better, but it's just, just way more divisive and it's rooted in everything that they're supposed to be against, which is white supremacy. They're talking well, towards white supremacy. But, uh, taking, pot taking pot shots at Tyreek and knowing how he is and he coming back at you and stuff, that just creates a whole lot of static. And right mm-hmm. there, that's why everybody is going at each other because they're going at, you know, he just should have kept his mouth shut. He opened himself up to a can of worms, a Pandora's box tone I'm talking about. Because once he went after Tyreek, you already know how Tyreek is already wound up. You already know. So he came at him full guns. Look what he did. Look what Tyreek did to Michi. He had his minion write that woman's son in prison trying to make him commit suicide. We are dealing with twisted people online. Absolutely. Twisted people here. That's why my social circle is a dot. I hear you. You go on with the prayer, y'all. I'm I'm through for tonight. I'm about to smoke. Hey, I wanted to uh, add something about that. Uh, in Cobra, actually, I've been working with them for about six months now. They have a program on our network that's on the first and third uh, Monday. Um, the first oh, and third Monday at 9 o'clock p.m. And I don't understand 
how you're going to call yourself an organization. First of all, you're not an organization. Where's your nonprofit charter or your or your uh, super PAC or or political action committee paperwork? You are a for-profit entertainment company, as far as I'm concerned, because that's all you're doing. It's entertaining people on YouTube with a bunch of negativity. Now, if if my mission is to get a, a, is to get reparations for the descendants of victims of of slavery here in America, then that's all I'm focusing on. I don't. I, I've been I've been listening intently, you know, because I in sound engineer their program and all the different guests. They just had an older woman from Evanston, Illinois, on last night. The podcast is up. Who okay. just uh, got a historic reparations commission for ten million dollars set up in Evanston. This is the first time of its kind. It's just for. The, the descendants of, of, of victims of slavery in Evanston, but she ain't even tying it to slavery. She tying it to more recent abuse, like redlining and, you know, a lack of uh, uh, financial support for, because she's saying Air, uh, Evanston is doing great. Everybody's doing great except for the black community. So she set up a reparations uh, commission and, and, and they're going with the, um, Cannabis just being legalized, they're going to use that revenue to set up a $10 million fund to pay black people, not to give them services or anything like that, but to pay black folks in Evanston. As long as I've been doing their program, sound engineering their program, all they focus on is reparations. They don't focus on immigration. They don't concern themselves about where an actor was born that's playing this person in a movie. That's all nonsense. That's all distraction. All it does is create negativity. Negativity attracts negativity. So if I find that you're a very negative person and that's all you're about is trashing other people and tearing down other people's organization, that tells me that the reason you're talking bad about, about other organizations is because you ain't got nothing good to say about your own. Why don't you uplift your own accomplishments? What's your accomplishment? Oh, I started a hashtag, or I caused all this online hatred towards an African, uh, uh, um, um, a Nigerian UK actress who played um, Harriet Tubman in that movie. And I watched that movie. I ain't paid to go see it because I don't go. I don't pay to see it. I watched it online. That was a good movie. None of the stuff they were saying was true. There was no white savior in there. And 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 yeah, it was a black slave catcher, but there were black slave catchers. I wish he hadn't have been black, but let's not act like these people don't even exist today. Going back to our black cop conversation. Okay, yes sir. You know, and and, and so you know, I quit following certain people because I seen that all they was doing was about getting folks to fight each other. And not really, again, if your focus is on reparations, then focus on reparations. Lead the immigration stuff to the immigration advocates or those who are against it or for it. Your singular mission is supposed to be about reparations. And then you alienating all these other folks, and then you're wondering why black uh, uh, elected representatives don't want to meet with you. It's good. Well, they certainly meeting with in Cobra. In Cobra wrote the HR 40 bill. Where's your bill? Where, where's the work you didn't put in? 
And then, like, now they're talking about an African uh, dude playing Fred Hampton, okay? Now, I, I mean, I can understand why you might want African Americans to play these roles, but let's not act like African Americans ain't played Africans in the movies. We're really? talking about movies, y'all. That's all we're talking about is movies. This is this, That ain't important to me, you know, as important as reparations or getting this boot up off our neck. But I'm like, okay, but you want to you wanna talk about some African who might play Fred Hampton in the movie, but you speak out against the things that Fred Hampton was for. Okay. Fred Hampton was pan-Africanist. Fred Hampton was about, about building cross-cultural or cross-ethnic coalitions and what have you. So here you are going to use his name for your own agenda of attacking African immigrants or Africans, period, who weren't born here. So that that's how I feel about them, man. I don't pay them no mind, really. I only hear about stuff from other people about some beef they've been in because I didn't block them all, man. And I got ADOS oh, who identifies ADOS who follow me on on social media and and what have you. And mm-hmm. and I don't get into beast with them because they don't come at beast with me. Uh, you know, you call yourself. Everybody has a right to self determination, but. I haven't found a descendant of victims of slavery in my family tree. It could be one in there, and I just haven't found them. Um, but even then, I wouldn't. Di- those victims didn't even want to be called slaves themselves. They wanted to be called human beings. They wanted to be Absolutely. called men. They wanted to be called women. Slave is a status. It's not an identity. Okay, why do you want to accept an identity that the that the oppressor put on the slaver put on you? So I, I find okay. disrespectful of of the people they claim claiming to be descendants of. That's just, they didn't even want to be called that, but whatever. You know, it's it's interesting you you saying what you're saying because when you even when you look at the the whole acting thing, it's really those pe- people who are arguing about that are pretty much. Uh, black Americans who are angry because they're begging white people for jobs in the entertainment business. And the funny part is, like you said, it's happened in reverse for generations where you've had African Americans or American Africans playing the roles of whether Caribbean people or African people, and no one's complaining on the other side. Because you know what? Everybody understands that whether the whether it's the film industry in Britain or the, or the film industry in America, it's slim picking. So everybody's trying to get in where they fit in. So rather than beefing about something like that, that you're not controlling because black people don't control Hollywood, it's all white people. So again, it's asking for a handout. It's like, oh, okay, well, there's only a limited amount of jobs that Massa made as far as acting is concerned. So we got to kick these other niggas out because they're coming from other countries trying to take our jobs. It's, 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 it's the most ridiculous logic I've ever heard when we don't run anything. We don't run anything. And the, the 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 situation with with um with uh the the anti the the excuse me with uh with the anti-immigrant stance when you're dealing with reparations that should tell you that should immediately foster a red flag popping up in your mind when you have an organization whose stated mission is one thing but they're involving themselves in a whole bunch of other things and all of those things are divisive. 
if you're about that one subject of reparations, the only thing that should be coming out the mouth of Yvette and Tone should be reparations and nothing else. Like you said, leave the immigration for people who fight in immigration issues. Leave the other subjects for people fighting for those issues. If your issue is reparations, that is all that should be the talking point, period. But all the vitriol. I don't hear African-American actors complaining, oh, I didn't get that cast in that job. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's fighting for slim pickings that the white man is, holds the cards for. And even when and you look at reparations, you're still asking. Go ahead. I mean, what about, what about what about those of us who go overseas and work? And it happens all that. That's but that's what I'm saying. Like the thing is that the entire approach to some American Africans on the subject is completely one-sided and it's completely narrow-minded. They're not putting themselves in the shoes of other people. I already gave the example of the the hundreds of um, American African soldiers that the British offered freedom to, and they told them, hey, if you help us fight fight against the Americans, you can get freedom. We'll take you to Britain. And they didn't take them to Britain. They sent them to Trinidad. They've been there since the 1800s. Ain't no Trinidadians saying them them African Americans got to get the heck up out of here. They're taking our jobs. They've been fully integrated into Trinidadian society. They're celebrated each and every year. They're always looked at as upstanding citizens. Nobody's complaining about them. They've been there for generations now. And it, and you have uh, black pe- people who moved to many other countries, and the people, the native, the native blacks in those areas are not chasing out the, the African Americans with cowbells. They're accepting them. So why is it when the shoes on the other foot? The discussion is we in America, you know, we we allow everybody into our neighborhoods. We accept everybody. And then the people who you are most adamantly against are the people who look like you. But yet your your trope is that we accept everyone, which is true. On a historical level, that is pretty much true. But there's also a historical level of where a lot of black Americans were quite hateful to to immigrants. I know it because I experienced some of that. And I still don't hold a grudge against American Africans. I completely have first myself in American culture. I live here. I'm American. So the the idea is that the, the way that we are trained to look at things literally a white mindset in a black face. We are thinking and functioning like them, and we can't even see it in ourselves. I wouldn't call it a white mindset. I call it a white supremacist mindset. That's even better. Yeah, that's true because, yeah, because not all white people think this way and function this way. But so you're absolutely right. It's a white supremacist mindset with a black person being the propagator of that mindset. And we can't even see that because we're so stuck in our position, and we're and, and the position again is a position of victim. Is I'm the victim, and these other black people are doing this to me. And then when you get to the actual source, nitty gritty, the root of the situation, it's all about situations that white people have all all the controlling, uh, controlling um, all the control over. There's no black people in control of the situations that that these people are angry about. It's white people, but yet the the people who they are focusing their negativity and anger and vitriol towards are the people who are just trying to fit in and get in where they fit in and try to make a life for themselves. They run it from something in their other country that got them here and they just trying to do the best they can. You know what? Just to uh, head us on out for the night before we get to that prayer, that goes into what the, uh, when they had, when we listened to the, the clip about the, uh, the civil war, 
if something yes. happened to Trump. The difference is, is that we have a lot of us that are willing to take advantage and do harm to us when yeah. on the other side, they are waiting for an excuse to do something to all of us. Just to have it in perspective before you hit that uh, hit that prayer for us tonight. Absolutely. I, I thank you for that because I think that's, that's the greatest thing. Like the only people who are to gain from us fighting amongst ourselves are the very people who put us in the situation that has us so messed up in the first place. And the only people who don't see it are the people who are messed up, us. Like, when will we start to really step outside of the situation and take a look from an outside position and see the manipulation that's being done psychologically and psychosocially and the conditioning that's happening towards your own self-destruction? The only time it seems like we're able to come together is when all our lives are at threat, at risk. Why is that? Why should it take that for us to put aside our differences? Why should it take the colonizer putting us in a position where we, we might be genocided or hauled off to in a concentration camp for us to put aside our differences when we can actually do stuff while the pr- pressure is not that heavy to change things for ourselves, amongst ourselves with no, you know, with just, just us being able to really collectively coalesce around problem solving with each other? Why does it take extreme pressure from outside forces to make us say, you know what, I really need that dude down the street. And just a week ago, you, you wanted to kill him because you just hated his guts or her guts. It's, it's, it's insanity. But it, again, the system is insanity. And we all have to be a touch insane at minimum, a touch at minimum, but at maximum, very insane to function in this society in a way in which we haven't completely lost our minds. And some of us really have. A lot of us really are. We, we're, we're just damaged. Like, we really are, myself included. Like, we all are. And we have to really take a step back before we decide how we feel about other people and take a holistic look at history because there's a lot of things this country has done to a lot of the people that some Black Americans are angry at. And they're not even aware of it. It's almost like the white Americans who run around in, in, in this, this stupor about America being the greatest country in the world. And then the real history is atrocious, but white people can't see it because they're used to just being supreme and everybody loving on them. And it's a similar kind of a, a, a misunderstanding with some black people. They do not in any way, shape or form understand the shortcomings of the country that they come from. And in some cases, their own people's contribution to those things. But yet the blame is always external. It's always external. And we have to take a self-analytical look in order to improve the way that we function in the world. And also try to facilitate functioning in a holistic way with other people. That's just, that's just, I mean, we got to share this planet, like real talk, like we got to share this. And the only answer to black people's problems is other black people. Mm. I don't care what way you put it. I don't care what. You can't tell me that. Look at the world we're in. Look at how long we've been in this situation and tell me that that our problems will be solved by anybody else and I will laugh in your face till the cows come home. Because we've tried everything else except unity. We literally have tried everything else there is to try, and it has not been effective. It's partially effective. We've gotten some changes to take place, but for the most part, we're pretty much in, in a crappy position and have been this way for hundreds and hundreds of years. 
The only thing we haven't tried is actually coming together. And it's slowly taking place already on the continent and in other parts of the world. It's happening. And you don't want to be left behind. Like as a, as a people, we don't want to leave groups of us behind because a lot of, a lot of the people who will end up getting left behind might be some of the people who have a lot of answers to the problems that we have. And it's all about perception and mentality and, 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 and moral, moral, uh, countenance and, 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 and character. It's not just about what you know and what you can contribute, but it's also about the character of, of people, people's character. I always say character sets the trajectory of every relationship you have, whether it's romantic or platonic, familial or stranger or acquaintance. Your character is everything. The people who, who are talked about the longest and the most after they die are people with good character and the infamous. Who wants to be remembered infamously? You would rather be remembered for, for having a good character where people can say, man, this person did everything they could to help as many people as they could. Not, oh, this person just created havoc and chaos and, you know, caused people to hate other people and kill each other over nonsense. Like, really, it's just about character. And we all need to develop that. We have to develop good character. And with that will come better decisions. Even better decisions about people who you may not have liked. And you might not even know why you don't like them. You might not like them because it's crap you heard some other ignorant person say to you. Not because you actually don't like them. You know what, Rob? What's up? We gonna, this going to explain it all. And then we're going to have to get ready, on, get ready to get on out of here. Sure. A group of scientists placed five monkeys in a cage and in the middle a ladder with bananas on top. Every time a monkey went up the ladder, the scientists soaked the rest of the monkeys with cold water. After a while, every time a monkey went up the ladder, the others beat up the one on the ladder. After some time, no monkey dare go up the ladder, regardless of the temptation. Scientists then decided to substitute one of the monkeys. The first thing this new monkey did was go up the ladder. Immediately, the other monkeys beat him up. After several beatings, the new member learned not to climb the ladder, even though he never knew why. A second monkey was substituted, and the same occurred. The first monkey participated on the beating for the second monkey. The replacements repeated until what was left was a group of five monkeys that, even though never received a cold shower, continued to beat up any monkey who attempted to climb the ladder. If you ask the new group of monkeys why the beatings took place, the answer would probably be, Well, I don't know. That's just how things are done around here. That's why we act the way we act. We've been in pretty magnificently. But here does we take us on out of here, Brother Rod. Yes, sir. We're going to definitely close out. Just always remember, we've been conditioned in a Pavlovian way. That's what they're describing. After a while, you were so trained that there was something up that ladder that would cause us to whip your behind. You forget the reason. I mean, you talk about the Bloods and the Crips, they forget why they're killing each other. They've been doing it so long, it's just tradition. We got to stop that. So with that, we're going to end up closing out the program. Thanks to everyone who spent this Tuesday evening with us. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Brother Hayes, thank you for your commentary and your insight. 
Our brother Cujo, same thing. Big up to you. Big up to you, brother Scotty. It was great to have you calling as well. All the other calls and listeners, we thank you for taking your time and energy to spend with us this evening. We greatly appreciate it, and, and we thank you for that. And to all the people who will listen to the podcast at a future date, thank you as well for your time and attention. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. Um, please feel free to support Black Talk Radio Network by donating. If you go to the Black Talk Radio Network website, there is a letter B that you can click that will take you to the options to uh, donate via the different mediums that you are able to donate. I believe PayPal. Um, uh, you can also send uh, a check or money on in the mail if that, if that also is, is a better way for you. However, whatever means it is, click on that B and it will take you to it. Um, also, you can join BTR Community, which is a closed social media space um, that costs $24 a year. So for anyone who wishes to support that way, you can join it, and that way you can actually be online having conversations with uh, black people who have something to contribute to the narrative narrative of the black experience in this country um, in a closed space where you don't have to worry about being flagged or being kicked offline or also being data mined or having some job pull up your information and then tell you you're not hired because you made a comment online that they happen to see. It's a closed social media space, so they're not going to see your commentary. It's personal like that. So feel free to join that way and assist the network that way. We greatly appreciate everyone who does contribute to keeping the station alive and um, uh, allowing Scotty to continue to allow us to have this platform, to have these types of discussions. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So with that, we're going to say the prayer and close out. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time that we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Let's replace white supremacy with justice ASAP, and let's end human trafficking and the prison industrial complex as well, ASAP. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is, I am. The all can, I can. The all does, I do. Once again, thank you to each and every one of you for spending this Tuesday evening with us. Stay safe and out of the hands of slave catchers. Minimize contact to minimize conflict with other black people and create a willing. We will see you again next week, Tuesday. Thanks to everyone for calling in and for commenting, and to those who just listened, thank you for listening, listening to us and giving us your time and attention. Peace and love, Ubuntu and Ahulu to each and every one of you. See you next week. Peace. Peace and love. See y'all next week. Why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything they told me not to was exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop, man. I tried the best I could, but... Make me smile. What's your addiction? Is it money? Is it girls? Is it we? I've been afflicted by not one, not two, but all three. She's got the same thing about me, 
but more about us. So she's coming over, so I guess that means I'm a trust. Just let me peek now. I mean, dang, I'm so curious. She's got a lover, so the lies and the lust is a rush. Time's of the essence. I need you to be spontaneous. Roll up the doja. Henny ain't cut colder. Then I'm coming over, cause it's n- never over. Why everything that's supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything they told me not to was exactly what I would. Man, I try to stop, man. I tried the best I could, but make me smile. I see the emotion in your eyes that you try not to show. We get the closest when you high or you drunk or you blow. So I pour the potion so we can both get high as we can go. And I'll get the lotion and do something to me when the guys is exposed. No turning back now. I mean, I don't mean to impose. Not now, but right now, I need you to undress and then pose. I'm into that now. Get your vibe when the doors get closed. Roll up the doja. Henny and Coca-Cola. And I keep come coming over because it's never over. Why everything is supposed to be bad make me feel so good? Everything they told me not to is exactly what I would. Man, I tried to stop, man, I tried the best I could, but make me smile.